someone wants to be in the field of nutrition today, I feel that they would be best to be open to new ideas. The nutrition field is always growing, and it would just make sense to me that people would be open to new ideas. Given the crisis that's occurring, I would love to see people get together at a think tank and uh, be open to, well, let's figure this out together. Speak openly, have conferences, tackle the issues about obesity epidemic, childhood diabetes. And this would be especially true since nutrition is an emerging science. And it's the only science, as I've said probably to you many times before, the only science where people can prove things that are diametrically opposed to each other. So you have people who can definitely prove that dairy is good for you and builds strong bones, and you have people who can definitely prove to you that having dairy can cause phlegm and respiratory problems and other reproductive issues and things like that. That's a little bit strange, because mostly in science, it's science. And nobody disagrees that the speed of light is 670 million, out, million miles per hour. Everyone agrees about the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Everyone agrees that water is H2O. No one thinks it's H2X or H2Y. It's science. You know, everyone agrees what the heart is responsible for pumping uh, blood through the system. The average heartbeat is 72 beats per minute. Doesn't it occur a little odd that in nutrition, it's, it's like the wild, wild west. And for me, I had to uh, bring peace to that by coming up with this idea of bioindividuality. That one person's food is another person's poison. And that we know today much more about nutrition than we did 20 years ago. But I think it's important what I want to bring to America and to the world is a chance for us to say, you know, we don't know really what's true. We don't know the effects of chemicals in our food system, of genetic engineering. We don't know if sugar is neutral or good for you or bad for you. And even the term dairy can mean a lot of different things. You know, it's illegal to have raw milk because of things that happened 20, 30, 50 years ago. But maybe imagine if that was actually helpful for people. Or it's considered that organic is really the same as uh, commercial. But we don't know that. So I think rather than the government coming down with, there is no difference, it, we would all be a lot better off if people who were running the system would say, you know, we don't know. So this thing where government comes in, especially government, and said, well, we do know and it's not harmful, is, in my opinion, uh, inappropriate. It's a bit like uh, when they had maps of the world in the early days. And uh, I'll show you a couple maps and you'll see what that looks like. So this is a map from uh, 1482. So you see this is what they thought Africa looked like. So you'll see that uh, they have Africa there in a certain way. You look at the Middle East and India. You see the Middle East, how that looks is off. 
India was further away, so they really didn't know what that's like. And the most interesting thing is that on this end of the map, there's no such thing as America because Europeans had not yet discovered America. So people were guessing. And also, they didn't know what caused the wind. So you see these people here? They're blowing wind. Those were the wind gods making the wind happen. And so people's own self-involvement and own short-sightedness made them think this is the way the world is. So this is only 40, 50 years later. Africa, they still think, is like square over here. They have this idea now, India's a little bit clearer, but now this Asia, Malaysia area has become much bigger. And suddenly, they discovered this, which you'll see here, it says, is called America. They thought that was America, and this is Florida. All, all they knew at that time was Miami Beach. They're like, you know, Fountain of Youth, Ponce de Leon, they, they had, Texas didn't exist, Canada wasn't around yet. You, you see what I'm saying? In the field of nutrition, I think this is around where we're at. They're just like figuring out, uh, you know, what's truly true. But no, people are guessing. And then because there are special interests, like the different food industries, and because there is lack of campaign finance reform, these established lobbies pay politicians. And in my opinion, it's, if you're a politician, it's very hard to after someone gave you a lot of funding, to come down on them and say, you know, there's a problem with your industry. This is today. You'll see that, uh, you know, a lot clearer what America is. Not only that, they've actually charted the Antarctica. And not only that, but you'll see even underwater mountain ranges and depth of the ocean have been clearly charted. So there's much more detail. And this is what I think the map of nutrition will look like in the future. 50 years, 100 years. No one's going to argue today that you know, this range of mountains doesn't exist here or here. We, just, we know that that's true. And so I'm just looking forward to a time when Nutrition will be different because today, whatever is the trend is the trend. You know, at one point it's uh, low fat diet, one point it's high protein diet. It's a bit like fashion, where um, whatever, because in America so much of nutrition is related to the publishing industry, you know, this book comes out, then people follow with that trend. Next book comes out, they follow that trend. Hopefully we'll get to a day where it's just clearer what people should be eating and can be eating. It's a bit similar, the world of nutrition and the world of global warming. Most countries in the world would agree, whatever is, has signed the Kyoto Treaty, which says that, look, we don't really know what's causing global warming, but what we do know is that our global environment is in trouble. We have been 
badly treating uh, Mother Earth, and uh, we mine it, we do everything to it, and we trash it, and we need to change it because it's our home. And so I feel that the topic of global warming is best left to national and international scientists. That's their job, is to do science and figure out what's really true, and then help government make decisions based on that kind of evidence. See, the problem with government, we have crisis today with uh, war, we have crisis today with financial institutions. Government has a hard enough time doing government. When, right? when government gets involved with science, then we have a really big problem. And although today people can see that uh, it's quite, many people today can see it's questionable for government to be involved with finance and banking and trouble with government involvement in the environment, almost no one today can see that it's a problem for government to be involved with nutrition. The, the wholesale acceptance of the USDA healthy eating pyramid, the government's control of what gets fed to children in schools, pretty much no one is hip to that that might not be a good idea, and it can cause the same kind of bubble or crisis as with housing and finance and things like that. Do you know that America spends more money on medicine than do all the people of Japan, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, combined? What we have today is a system where you basically eat whatever you want and take this pill, this magic pill, the purple pill, the blue pill, and it will all disappear. And very, very few people in America are aware of these kinds of facts and information. Government heavily subsidizes foods that are not healthy. Which foods does our government most subsidize? Nowadays it's corn, wheat, anyone here, wheat allergy, cattle industry, dairy industry, sugar industry, how much money is spent to subsidize and support fruits and vegetables? About zero. In one action, the government could change the entire health crisis in America by increasing subsidies for fruit and vegetables. Instead of an apple, because the price of meat and milk, for example, is artificially low because of government subsidies. Subsidies weren't there. Someone had to actually pay for the cost of the Brazil rainforest being taken down for cattle grazing or the amount of land used. The price of meat would be so much higher. So with a little bit of funding for people who grow fruits and vegetables, or promotion for people who grow organic food, the price of an apple, instead of being 50 cents, could be 20 cents. price of vegetables could be 15 cents a pound. Everything would change. People wouldn't buy so much junk food, because 
lot of people, especially low-income people, they just can't afford to buy a fruit. What keeps them full is a bag of chips until the next meal happens. So I want to uh, make sure that you have awareness about this. I don't think this is in the curriculum of any other nutrition school in America. And there's a reason for that. It's because there's pressure to keep this information uh, away from people. On the other hand, we're living in a time where people are getting heavier and sicker and even However dependent people are on medication today, for heart, for blood pressure, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. My mother probably wouldn't be alive if not for medication. So medication helps many people stay alive and live longer. But somehow, besides subsidizing fruit and vegetables in the multi-million trillion dollar healthcare budget, wouldn't it be nice to see some money spent on health education? There's nothing, you know, having a course that moms could take for free to learn how to be a pregnant mom, having uh, information for people at all levels about how to be healthy and educate them with real information about what works and what doesn't work in the food system. getting involved with food policy. The role of government in nutrition and the food industry is controversial. In many ways, government helps ensure that the food supply is safe for consumption. But many feel uneasy about how involved government is in determining nutritional standards. Every country may have slightly different nutritional standards and government agencies involved regulating food. Check out the government website in your area to learn more about how your country regulates food. In the United States, for example, the two main agencies regulating the food supply and the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates foods most, food additives, cosmetics, prescription, and over-the-country or over-the-counter drug and baby formula and the Department of Agriculture which regulates meats, poultry and egg products. Example of government influence No matter where you live, there are a variety of ways that the government can influence nutrition. Here are examples. Provide governmental subsidies to farmers. Subsidies give farmers an incentive to grow certain crops. Things like corn and soy are often favored over the other produce due to subsidies, which can drive down the price of these foods. Set government nutrition recommendations. Brazil is often cited for having one of the most holistic set of recommendations put out by a government. Set labeling requirements. The government determines the proper language to be used and which nutri nutrients must be included on in nutrition labels. In fact, the nutrition label in the United, United States was revamped in 2016 
most companies were required to update their labels to reflect these changes by January 2020. One exciting change was the disclosure of crumbs of added sugar. Fund's Nutrition Education Initiatives This will include everything from educational websites to nutrition curriculums that can be used in schools. Offer food assistance program to low-income individuals, families, and, er and the elderly. In the United States, government agencies such as Women, Infants, and Children, Head Start, and the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program helps low-income individuals and families assess food initiatives to provide low-income students with subsidies for free. Lunches during the summer months are also common. Award grants for nutrition-related research. The National Institute of Health, for example, is one of the largest government-funded research agencies in the world. Regulate GMOs and food additives. Government can determine how GMOs and food additives are or are not allowed in the food supply. Communicate information regarding food recalls. This refers to food that poses a risk to consumers and is removed from the shelves. Set food safety standards for restaurant and other places of food production. The hazard analysis and critical condition points system, for example, was developed to ensure that the food remains Saved through all points of production from food delivery to serving. Ways to initiate policy change. If there are nutrition or food related policies that you'd like to change, getting involved in your local government is a great place to start. Here are a few ways to get involved. Reach out to your local representative. Write a letter, make a phone call, or schedule a meeting to voice your concern and ideas. Attend town halls. These public forums are a great platform to providing input on proposed legislation and meeting with your representatives face-to-face. -face. Run for public office. If you have an interest in government and inciting policy changes, you might consider running for a government position. Vote. Whether it's a local election or an Election for country's highest office. Voting for leaders, leaders who share your values is important. Remember, you are a powerful force. If there is something you're passionate about, there are many ways to initiate positive change. However, you decide to get involved. You will spread the ripple effect and create meaningful change. Started, I kind of was like, we'll call it a ripple effect, but I'm thinking to change it to the tsunami effect. <laughs> but uh, a few people commented about the idea about the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the health revolution. And 10 years before the French Revolution, no one knew there was going to be a French Revolution. And 10 years before the American Revolution, they didn't know that. They were just, things were like boiling up. And so we're just we're in that stage now. One of the big differences is that 
it's my feeling that the health revolution will be uh, achieved through uh, women and moms because they are the keeper of the family and the health of the family. Uh, most of our students are women. Most of the clients of our students are women. How are you guys doing today? I'm like so excited to see all of you. What I see out here is hope. I see hope for the world. Because I tell you, four years ago, I didn't have a lot of hope. Actually, uh, 15 years ago, I had zero hope. Um, and, you know, four years ago, I wasn't even on the internet. I had no Facebook page, no Twitter account, no blog. And look what happened when you start to use your voice. And today, that is what I'm going to share with you, is when you start to use your voice, and you start to share your story with the world, you can set it on fire. When I was uh, younger, I grew up, uh, not, not when I was younger, just when I grew up, I grew up with two amazing immigrant parents. They came here from India in the 60s. My dad was here first, and he was going to school at Purdue University getting his PhD. And his mother summoned him back to India to ask, hey, you know what, son? It's time that you get married. You're 27. It's time that you get married, and we're going to introduce you to some women. And my dad, the first woman he met was my mom, Bina. And immediately he fell in love. He met several women after that. But he kept telling my aunt, um, and I hear this story from them all the time, kept telling my aunt, you know, Vina was the one, she was the one, and that's who I want to marry. Little did my mom know that she was going to get married just a few days later. She thought she was just going away on a weekend trip with her parents to meet some men. She had no idea that she was going to get married. She got married a few days later, got whisked away to America on her honeymoon. And the first thing my dad did was introduce her to McDonald's. He said, if we're going to live in America, we're going to eat like Americans. And of course, as you guys probably have read in your studies and know, in India, the cow is sacred. You don't eat beef. There's not a lot of beef being sold. When you go to McDonald's, even in India, there's a lot of vegetarian options. And so this type of diet really shocked my mother's system. And, you know, she started living the American way. And when my parents had me and my brother, they raised us the American way. And as a result, you know, we grew up on processed food. Lots of it. We wanted to fit in. We were some of the only kids that were Indian in our small community in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was one of the only Indian children in my school. I didn't look like anybody else. I wasn't black, I wasn't white, I was in the middle somewhere. And because I didn't have that identity, I just wanted to fit in so badly. I wanted to be just like the popular girls, just like the kids that I grew up next to, 
just like the kids on my bus on the way to school. And what did they eat? They ate a lot of processed food too. And I remember going over to my uh, neighborhood friend's house and eating all of the Swiss cake rolls and all of the Twinkies and all of the fudge sickles in their fridge and learning about these American foods. Because at home, my mom was cooking Amer Indian food because it was the only food that she knew how to cook. She didn't have handed down recipes from my, my grandmother because they were Indian. They were Indian style cooking with lots of medicinal spices made from scratch, curries, and that looked weird to me. It looked foreign. It looked, it smelled really different than McDonald's. And as a result, I, you know, wanted my mom to make American food. And what did she do? She relied on the American food system, what was available at the grocery stores. You know, we had the Betty Crocker, we had the Salisbury steak that you put in the microwave, we had the Fry Daddy that you'd get the mozzarella sticks and you'd put them in the Fry Daddy and you'd fry them up and you would get this food that we thought was food, that was sustenance, that we thought would make us full, that we thought would help us grow as children. And growing up on this diet, I had so many health issues. I had no idea it was related to my diet, though, at the time. I thought they were genetic. My brother had these issues, so I had these issues, and I thought they were in my family. And so as I was going through so many bouts of eczema surrounding my body, on every crease of my body, on my face, being hospitalized for asthma, having allergies nonstop. I'm not talking about seasonal allergies. I'm talking about always having a runny nose and always being in that circumstance of you being invited to a slumber party and wondering if you're going to make it through the night being at someone else's house in somebody else's environment around someone else's cat or dog that you might be allergic to. And I grew up with these ailments thinking that there was a solution. And so, so did my parents and they took me to doctors and every time they took me to a doctor, no doctor ever asked me what I was eating or what my parents were feeding me. They gave me a prescription. And so for most of my life, I was on prescription drugs. I was on eight at one point, eight or nine actually, I think nine when it was, the season was really bad for allergies. And as a kid growing up, for most of my life, I can't tell you how much money I spent on pharmaceutical drugs to try to heal my conditions that I thought were genetic. When I graduated college and got to school and figured out that basically that, you know, in order to succeed in this world, you really have to find your calling and you have to find out what you're really good at and you have to go and 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 I had this sense of ambition and I'm talking about you know having these two parents that came from India and you know if, if anyone knows anything about the Indian culture you're either an engineer or a doctor you know those were your two kind of things that you could do in life and so when I got this prestigious job right out of college to work for a big six consulting firm I was so excited because I thought, wow, this is what true success is. I'm going to be working for this prestigious company. And so, again, I was in this situation where I was trying to fit in and trying to excel at my job. And as a result, 
I continued to do what I did as a child. I ate what everybody else was eating around me. I stopped having control over my body and I was eating the food that was being brought in for breakfast, lunch, and dinner so that we could continue throughout the day and work these crazy long hours working for you know these clients that were billing us by the hour and it was just so important for us to just fit in and fit into this mold this very robotic mold and as a person right out of college and you get this job that's all you want to do is excel you want to achieve success and my situation got so bad, I gained so much weight, and I got so sick, and all of these other ailments got so bad that I actually started to feel pretty sad about my situation. And thankfully, thankfully, now I know when I went through this health crisis that I'm about to tell you about, that it was for a reason. One day I was sitting on the couch, just minding my own business, I would go, you know, to go work out after work because I was trying to stay fit, right? I was trying to get my body back in shape. And I went to Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A, you know, if you ate there, you could get a Chick-fil-A sandwich and it was under 400 calories. So I thought that was really healthy. And I was under this impression that calories are king. And if I keep my calories under a certain amount, I'm going to lose weight and I'm going to start to feel better. And I'd just eaten a Chick-fil-A sandwich. And I was sitting on the couch, and I'm not blaming what happened on Chick-fil-A. I just want you guys to know that, because I don't want Chick-fil-A to sue me. But if they haven't sued me by now, I don't think I'm in any danger. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I was, I was sitting on the couch, and I had this terrible pain in my side. I call my brother, and I say, Yo, what do I do? What am I going to do? I have this terrible pain in my side. What should I do? Like, should I go to the hospital? What should I do? And he calls my parents. My parents rush me to the hospital. And the first doctor that sees me says, Bonnie, there's nothing wrong with you. We've checked you out. Everything's good. We're going to send you home. We think an ovary's moving. You're, and I can say there's a lot of women in here, you know. you know, And so, like, you know, your ovary's moving. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to be great. And I want you to go home, and I want you to take some Advil. And thankfully, for my parents' sixth sense, they said to me, Bonnie, we think we should see someone else in the morning. We just want to make sure everything's okay. And that next morning, I drove myself to my regular doctor, and within minutes, he told me that my appendix was probably going to burst and that I had to have it out immediately. I was in my early 20s, just got an organ taken out of my body, recovering, and I decided that I didn't want to live this way anymore that I didn't want to struggle with my health. I didn't want to be in hospital or doctor's offices anymore. I wanted to find an answer. And so I started to channel this energy, this energy about research. And this is something that I learned in high school when I was a top tiered ranked debater. I was number one three years in a row. And we, were, we would go away every summer to these different debate camps. And you would go and you would study every every season on a new topic and at Dartmouth Debate College you know where I spent two summers you would kind of lock yourself in these libraries and you would really read journals you would go through the microfiche you would copy all of these different pieces of evidence to make your case and that year's topic was healthcare. and I was using this information that I learned 
to win debate rounds, but I wasn't using it for my own health. And I remembered suddenly how screwed up the healthcare system was and how the food systems related to that. And I started to finally make the connection to my own body in that hospital room, in that, in that recovery situation. And so when I got back to work after that happening, I just started to make a decision that I was gonna take control of my health and I wasn't gonna let anybody get in my way. And this is like 15 years ago or so, just to give you an idea of the time frame. And I started to unlock what true health was. And when I started to do that, I started to ask the fundamental question, what is really in our food? I started to learn about what had, done, what had been done to the food industry, that the majority of things you have in the grocery store, 80% of them came from one or two crops that were subsidized by the government, corn or soy, and they were made basically to make junk food chemicals that didn't serve a nutritional purpose for the body, that they were largely invented just to improve the bottom line of the food industry that the majority of food additives that have been invented in the last 50 years were one purpose only, to sell more food faster and cheaper. And when I unlocked this message and I started to investigate my own food, the things I started to discover I just couldn't shut up about. And something dramatic happened. My body started to change in a way that I never thought was possible, that I didn't think would ever be the case. That picture That picture, when I look at that girl in that picture, she reminds me of a zombie. A zombie walking through life, not living the best life that she thought was possible, that she even knew was possible. When I look at that picture, I see a girl suffering, being very, very self-conscious about her puffy face and the eczema on her face and the lack of definition in her body and the lack of shininess of her hair and I, th I see someone very very afraid to show who she really is and voice up her opinion and I truly believe you know this is about primary food and finding your calling and, and finding a satisfying career in this world and I truly believe unless I would have found real food and real nutrition, I would not be able to do anything I'm doing today to take on the food industry. And we're going to get into that in just a second. But it is truly miraculous what can happen when you start to pay attention and ask yourself a fundamental question, what's really in your food? <laughs> so my friends and my family saw this dramatic transformation, obviously my very close friends, and they started to witness that I wasn't on the latest fad diet anymore, that I was able to maintain my weight year after year, that my health ailments had vanished, that I had gotten off every single prescription drug. My, some of my family members were very like 
skeptical and critical of it too. They were like, are you sure you have no asthma anymore? Because we have asthma and it's genetic and it runs in our family. And I just, how did you, I don't understand. Yeah, this was coming from some of my cousins and my own brother at one point. They didn't believe me, you know, they didn't believe that this could happen, but they saw it and they started seeing it and my very, very close friends and my coworkers, who I continued to work in this very fast-paced environment for 13 years later, I continued to work in this environment where you're sitting in a cubicle, everyone around you is in lockstep following the way, going to their subway station and getting their subway sandwich and slapping it on their desk, that, that sleeve that it comes in, every single day, right? And I'm like, ew. I stopped eating it because I thought it just tasted processed. I didn't know what was in it because I hadn't investigated that yet, right? I didn't know what was in it. But it was just this intuitive eating and intuitive consciousness that started to happen when I started to eat real food and finding what was really in my food and choosing to opt out of the chemical-based system that has been invented in the last 50 years and choosing to ask the fundamental question, if I put this in my body, is it gonna have life or is it going to give me death, right? Is it gonna give me nutrition or is it gonna give me deficiency? And those are just the basic common sense questions I started to ask myself. And you know what? I didn't go to nutrition school like you guys are going to, you know? I didn't go and learn to be a registered dietitian. I didn't go try to get a food chemistry degree. I set out on a mission for self-exploration and I had this insatiable curiosity about what was in my food and what I could do to live the healthiest life possible so that I could start to feel happiness, really, truly. So my friends and my family finally convinced me, Bonnie, Will you start a blog for us? Will you share your recipes? We want to know that green drink that you're bringing to work every day. We want to know what you're eating at lunch. We want to know what's in your little cooler when we go on our business trips. We want to know why you ask the server about the MSG and the soup. We want to know what's happening here. We, want, we just want to know your tips. Can you help us? And I had an intervention with a group of girlfriends one weekend in Chicago, and they, they said, well, first of all, you need to get on Facebook. You know, you're not on Facebook, and you haven't even seen our wedding pictures. And I said, well, you know, you know, the reason why I wasn't on Facebook and Twitter is because you didn't do that working in the corporate world. I was working for C-level executives, working for these high-profile projects. You didn't share your personal information online. You didn't want your boss to see that information. So when I started this blog, it was a a really uncomfortable situation for me to really share this publicly, what I was doing and what I was eating, because the people at work knew that I was kind of like the health freak, right? They called me like the food police and things like that, but they really didn't know how passionate I truly was, and I was just kind of scared about showing that. And so when I wanted to start this blog, I wanted to call it eathealthyliveforever.com. And eathealthyliveforever.com, according to my husband, was a stupid name. 
I yelled over to him one day on the couch and I said, hey, honey, can you please register this name, eathealthyliveforever.com, because he knew how to do all that web stuff. And so I was like, can you do it? And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's a stupid name. And I'm going to come up with a better name for you. And I was like, okay, well, you do that then. I was just kind of, I was like, kind of like, you know, offended. I was like, oh, okay, come up with a better name. A couple minutes later on auction for $10, I think, something like that, Food Babe was available. He yells out, <laughs> he yells out from the other room and says, Bonnie, what do you think about Food Babe? And all oh, this feeling over my body just kind of like surrounded me and I got, I just cringed and I was like, what? For most of my life, I looked nothing like a babe. So how in the world was I going to call myself the food babe, right? So I called my friends and I asked their opinion. It was one of my girlfriends, Nicole, and I said, hey, you know, what do you think about this name food babe? And she said, it's perfect. Describes you perfectly. And I said, no, no, no. It's got to be about teaching other people to become a food babe, right? And so that's what I set, set out to do when I started the blog. And so for the first year and a half, you know, I had these three little babe characters up there, right? And I never had my photo on the blog. I never even put my name on the blog because I was still working in the corporate world, living this like dual identity. And so I would just sign each blog post, food babe, like, you know, so I don't have to use my name, food babe. So that's how I became the food babe by, really by accident. And it's really interesting what kind of happens when you start to find your calling and you start to realize the impact you can make when you start to share your story. And that's what this blog is about, sharing my story, sharing what had happened to me, how I have changed my recipes, what I'm eating, what I'm doing in my life so that other people can become inspired. So how did I become an activist? You know, being an activist, I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about being an activist. I knew that I was passionate. I knew I wanted to make a difference in the world. I thought I was going to be like an executive at a corporation. I was very good at my job. I really liked working in the financial world. But I knew, I knew deep down, it truly wasn't my calling. I knew that I wanted to make a bigger impact in this world, but I had no idea what that would be at the time. And my first taste of activism was, was actually with a yogurt company. A yogurt company called Euphoria. And a girl at work that I'd seen make some dramatic health improvements that was sitting next to me at work every day, just following along with the blog and learning about my tips. She wasn't sleeping at night and all of us, eventually she started sleeping and she started to improve her health. And I realized, wow, sharing what I'm learning with people is really changing people's health. And so she came to work one day and she shared a story with me and she said, Bonnie, you know, last night I had the best time. And I said, well, what would you do? And she said, I went to the mall and I ate at this yogurt place. It's an organic yogurt place. And I was I had this wonderful night. I went shopping. I had some girl time. And I went in there and I got my organic yogurt with fresh fruit. And it was a great quick dinner. And it was so awesome. And we have organic yogurt. Yes, and this is Charlotte, North Carolina, where we still only have like one organic restaurant in the whole place. And we also just got a Whole Foods two years ago. So, you know, we're real far behind here like in Charlotte, right? So, like, to me, when she told me that there was an organic place at the mall, I was like, what? So what did I do? The next day,
exactly what I did is I went to the mall to that organic restaurant us uh, yogurt place and got organic yogurt and I started trying all the different organic yogurts I was going down each one I was trying them all and I got to this flavor called taro and I'd never heard of taro before taro. right well it was blue it came out there uh, came all blue out of the thing and I said taro must be blue and because I, again I have that insatiable curiosity the first thing I did when I got home that night was look up what is taro on the internet and I found out it's a root it's a fruit it's it comes from Asia but it's brown all the pictures I went like blue taro no it's brown <laughs> so I was like what's making that yogurt blue when you combine brown and white like milk organic milk does that equal blue so I started to ask some questions, and when I started to ask these questions, this yogurt company wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't tell me what was in their yogurt. But they were serving organic yogurt, and they had big signs that said, organic tastes better on the wall. And when I finally went down to three different locations of this chain, and finally convinced one of the employees to show me the packages and what they're pouring in this quote-unquote organic yogurt, I was horrified. An employee brought out a big package of blue powder full of artificial food dyes linked to hyperactivity in children made from petroleum and coal tar, full of partially hydrogenated oils that are linked to 7,000 deaths and 20,000 heart attacks according to the CDC, full of preservatives and genetically engineered ingredients, things are, that are prohibited in organic food. You can imagine how upset I was. I was upset at, for me and my friend Rachel, right? So I wrote about it. I wrote about it, and a few days later, the CEO of Euphoria reached out to me and wrote me a letter and apologized and yanked down the marketing. That is what activism is. Now, I had no idea that writing about my experience is activism. I had no idea that's what that meant. But that's exactly what activism is. It's sharing your experience and sharing the truth about what you experience with the world so that they can take action. And what had happened after I had written that article is that some big blogger decided to share it because I had no one reading my blog at this time. It was like my mom, my couple friends, right? Somebody decided to share it who then shared it with their friends and then shared it with their friends and then shared it with their friends. And the message got out so virally that Euphoria's customer service hotline had gone down. So that is the power of activism. And that was my first taste. And it just continued. And the next couple things that I started to take on were really fundamental. Chipotle was the next one. You know, this was a, a fast food chain that's doing miraculous things right now. But back then in 2012, they were saying their food was with integrity, but they weren't telling us what was in it. And when I called the headquarters to ask, they told me it was proprietary. I'll tell you right now, if there's a food company or food place that you eat 
right to know what is in our food. And when I called and asked what was in their black beans and their tortillas, they wouldn't tell me. And you know what? I knew why they wouldn't tell me because once I got down into my car and went from Chipotle location to Chipotle location to Chipotle location, this is why they call me an investigator because I don't just stop at what's available on the internet or where I can call. I go find it out. I eventually convinced, again, another employee of a Chipotle to show me the back of packages where I feverishly started to write down the ingredients so I could share it on my blog. And what did I find out? Found out that most of their food was made with genetically engineered ingredients. However, they were saying their food was with integrity. I didn't think that was integrity, supporting a type of crop that is linked to the use of pesticides and herbicides that are considered probable carcinogens. I didn't think that was food with integrity. I also didn't think their lack of transparency was food with integrity, so I wrote about that. I found out that they were using preservatives and trans fats in their tortillas. And that majority of their food wasn't organic. But they were getting away with this kind of idea of this. And so when this blog post went so viral, the communications director from Chipotle reached out to me and said, you know what, Bonnie? We're going to do it. We're going to post the ingredients online. But first, we're going to change some of the ingredients you need to bear with us. And the funny thing is, is that I offered on that call, I said, hey, I'm a computer scientist. Like, I'll help you put together a PDF. We just put it up. Two seconds. You guys make millions of dollars. Don't you have a computer scientist on staff, someone to help you with your website? Like, let's just put, put the ingredients on there. Everyone needs to know what they're eating. And so when Chipotle responded, I realized, wow, what other companies can we get to respond? All of them? <laughs> Chick-fil-A. I just started to write about Chick-fil-A, and I was really upset one day because my, my husband came home from work, and he had this pamphlet from Chick-fil-A, and I, I, I was like, honey, did you eat there? Like, why do, you, why do you have this pamphlet? He goes, no, 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 don't worry. I was trying to convince somebody else at work not to eat there, and she brought it actually to me, and she said, look, Finley, it only has so-and-so calories in this fat grams, da-da-da-da-da. And he said, no, 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 you need to turn that pamphlet over. They actually list the ingredients there. And look, there's almost close to 100 ingredients in a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. One of the first ingredients is MSG that tricks your brain into remembering a taste, making you eat more than you should. Is used as an ingredient to create food addiction. Not to mention the factory farmed and all the TBHQ that's uh, derivative of butane that the FDA only allows in a small certain amount but was listed three times in the sandwich and the bun and the, and, the, and the chicken itself. And if you got the fries, it was also in there. So who's measuring the cumulative effect of all these chemicals together? This chemical soup we're eating, right? So I posted the picture of the 100-ingredient sandwich on my Facebook page. And I got such a crazy reaction from friends. I got everything from, oh my gosh, disgust, to that's a hundred ingredients of deliciousness. Yeah. So I knew I had to write about it because they didn't understand the ingredients. They didn't know what they were doing to the body or what they can be doing to the body or why they were there to begin with. So I broke it down for them and I called this, this is another great thing that my husband does is when I'm like, 
deciding on a title for a blog post, I yell out, I'm like, what do you think about this? Chemical Filet or Chick-fil-A was the title of the article. And it went so viral that Chick-fil-A invited me to their headquarters. And at first I was so nervous about going there because I didn't want to meet with the enemy. I didn't want to meet with the evil factory farm. I didn't believe in their social policies. There were so many reasons why I didn't want to go. But in order to change this world, you have to meet with your critics. You have to meet with your enemies. And you have to open your mind. And I'm so glad I did because since then, they not only have started to remove some of the artificial ingredients that I talked about in that post, but they've decided to go antibiotic-free, which is going to be a huge wave of impact for our human health. So I was still working in the corporate world at this point, which is nuts, right? Like taking on these food corporations and by day working in the financial world keeping those really secret. Like, I had to take off work to go visit Chick-fil-A. Like, I'm taking vacation days. I'm flying down to Atlanta, you know? Like, insane, right? Living this double lifestyle. I started to realize that, like, every time I was in my cubicle, I would start daydreaming about my next investigation or what I wanted to share with people or ways that I had been duped. And thankfully, thankfully, this auspicious day where the day the world was supposed to end according to the Mayan calendar. I happened to be on my Christmas vacation in Machu Picchu. And I was on the top of Machu Picchu. And I'll tell you a little, I mean, you know, I thought of Machu Picchu, I was like, oh, it's a real touristy place. It's gonna be like, it's gonna be okay. I've seen the pictures, like, right? I get there, it's magical. It is a magical place. And there's a reason people pilgr pilgrimage to get there. But I was there and you know, it didn't have cell phone service for most of the time, but all of a sudden got this cell phone service. And it, one email came through. And I'm sitting with my husband, relaxing. We had just been hiking all day, sitting down for lunch. And this email comes through, and it says, Bonnie, your project is ending at the bank, but we're considering renewing you for the next year. Would you consider that? Under these terms, blah, 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 long email. And I look over at my husband and I say, you know what? I'm not going to take on that project. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the food babe full time. I expected him to say, how are we going to pay the mortgage? right? Because we were definitely dependent upon my salary. I was making a good salary. I was very successful at my job. I was making no money blogging, zero, nothing. I didn't have advertisements on there. Nothing. I was losing money, actually, because I think web hosting was more expensive, right? Losing money. So when I made this decision and I said to him, I'm going to do this, he looked at me and said, what have you been waiting for? And the reason why I want to share this moment with you is because I hope you realize that the only person in the way of your own path is yourself. It is yourself. 
And for so long myself, my idea of success and my idea of ambition and what success means, a 401k, health insurance, a steady job, is the most important thing. Not healing the world, not sharing your message, not finding your calling. And finally I decided to own this role that had been given to me in this world to wake people up about what's in their food and hold these corporations accountable. And things started to change. As soon as I got back from that vacation, I had website shame. Because I said, who, the, you know, when people go to that old website, who, you know, who, who's Food Babe? No one knows who she is. Nobody knows what I'm doing on there. They look like cartoons. Unless they had heard about one of my investigations, they had no idea what I was doing. And one of my friends so fervently said to me, you know what you are? You're hot on the trail to investigate your food. And I said, you know what? We all need to be hot on the trail to investigate our food. And we all need to become Food Babes. And so I wanted to show, finally, who I was, and so I rebranded my website when I got back. And I show you this too because I tell you, everything is a work in progress. Don't let perfection get in your way. You don't have to be perfect out of the gate to make an impact in this world. So I continued with my activism in two short months after I quit my job, I was on every single major national TV station every single newspaper across the world for a campaign that I'd taken on Kraft Mac and Cheese for this disparity, this double standard, this hypocritical policy of theirs to serve safer ingredients to citizens in other countries and not our own citizens. When they decided to take out artificial food dyes in Europe because they were going to have to put a warning label on their product that says may cause adverse effects on activity and attention in children and decided not to take out those same artificial food dyes here in the United States, I felt like that needed to change. And thankfully, not only is Kraft removing artificial food dyes, but Hershey's is, Nestle's is, General Mills is, everyone is on the bandwagon because you know what? We do not need these controversial ingredients in our food that are linked to hyperactivity in children when we can have real food ingredients that serve the same purpose for the food manufacturers that are safe. The Kraft Mac and Cheese won't change the color. You know, some people are mad at me. Some people are really mad at me. They're like, we're going to get a lawyer. We're going to have them change. We're going to make them keep this formula the same. This is food terrorism, right? <laughs> they say that. Don't worry. Paprika and turmeric are just as yellow. They are just as yellow. So then I decided to take on Subway and the beer companies and Cheerios and Panera Bread and Kellogg's, and General Mills, and Starbucks, and every single one of those companies has changed as a result of just sharing my story, sharing my research, and finally living up to what my calling is, is to really help people become awakened about what is in our food system. And what you can do I think is so important with this information in my story and I hope that it inspires you out there to make a change in your life and you don't have to be as crazy as I am going up against these billion dollar corporations because I tell you it is not easy. It is not easy. You don't have to be in the public eye to make a change. And one thing that I've realized through writing my best-selling book, The Food Babe Way, is that the most important part of this whole journey, 
is the individual people that are changing their health for the better as a result. That we are starting a food revolution, a health revolution, and you guys are part of it, I'm part of it, we are all part of it, and we all have our part. And the biggest lessons that I have learned through this whole journey is that, first of all, it's never too late to find your calling. You know, when I started blogging, I was 30, 32 years old, 32 years old. I didn't go to school for nutrition. I wasn't a food chemist. I was just an everyday person that decided to investigate and passionately find out about health. And everyone has that capability to do that in this room. The other message that I learned is that don't let anybody ever tell you no. When I was in Kraft headquarters delivering 270,000 signatures to their front doors, kind of unannounced, but not really because I asked everyone to call and say, let food babe in. But, you know, they finally let me in. And actually, the beginning of my book, I talk about that story, and you should read that. It's in the introduction, and it's really heated of what I was actually feeling in that meeting. But when they told me at the end of the meeting, you know what, our Kraft mac and cheese is going to stay the same. Our customers like it just the way it is. And then when they wouldn't answer my questions why they had reformulated it for other countries and things like that, and they told me to leave, basically, and say, you know what, we have to agree to disagree, I didn't let them tell me no. For the next year and a half, I waged an online campaign to educate every single person out there about what was in Kraft Mac and Cheese. And not only did they lose a ton of market share as a result, but they eventually had to make the change. And even in my own eating guide program where I share my menus and recipes and grocery lists, I have a commitment on there. If you sign up to be a member of the Food Babe Eating Guide, you have to commit to never eat Kraft Mac and Cheese again. <laughs> So don't let anybody ever tell you no. The other lesson that I've learned, and you've probably seen this in the media, is no mud, no lotus. This is a famous phrase from an amazing spiritual monk that writes in calligraphy, and you can actually see this painting at ABC home. It's uh, in the Deepak Chopra Center. You can see it. No mud, no lotus. What that means is without struggle, there is no progress. Without critics, there is no success. So when you go through these struggles, and this is a lesson that I'm still learning every single day because I tell you, every single person out there that is dependent upon this chemical system that we have today the overuse of chemicals or the genetically engineered ingredients that are being supplied in the food system or grown want this system to stay just like it is today, highly unregulated and very risky. Those people do not like me. They do not like me. And that's okay. They're on their mission and I'm on mine. And mine is very clear. Mine is to see everyone turn into a lotus. The last lesson here is, is so important, and it comes from one of my dear, dear friends and mentors, Gabrielle Bernstein. She always tells me this because I think it's just so incredible to understand that the universe has your back. That the reason your mother called you Bonnie when she, you were born, it means voice, 
or the reason why you went through all of these heartaches and all of these health ailments or the reason why you had this struggle or the reason why you grew up in the corporate world not trying to be living a life that you didn't really want to live but you thought was okay, not that great. The reason why you go through all of these struggles in life is to get you where you need to go and that the universe ultimately has your back and not to fear your path and not to fear what might come, just start to live it. And I think that's the message that I really want to bring home to every single person in this room because you all have a gift and I see hope. I see hope for a world where we all have access to safe healthy food, we all have access to truthful, unfiltered messages about health that aren't bought by the industry, that aren't bought by an alternative way that tries to make us sick. And so we all have the ability to find our calling and do this work, and I hope that my story here today inspires you. Thank you. sharing your message with us today. So we have a couple of minutes and we received some questions from our Facebook audience. So we're going to do a quick little Q&A. Okay. So we know that um, you're recognized by Time Magazine as one of the most influential people on the internet. And given all of the work that, that you've done, you've worked so hard and you've gone through so much. Can you just tell us how did that feel when that happened? Well, you know, seeing your picture in Time Magazine next to those words was pretty surreal. I kept, you know, I, I got the Time Magazine, I was looking at it, I was shaking my head going, what? No, this is crazy. But what it represents, it's bigger than me. And this is something that I really want everyone to realize that the work that you're doing is bigger than just yourself. That the signification of being one of the most influential people on the internet is signifying where we are in the food revolution movement, that our voices are finally being heard, that we are getting clear messages to the food industry and chemical industries and saying, you know what, we've had enough. We want more access to real organic foods. And that is what that achievement really shows, is that the internet, the social media, everything that's happening, we're sharing this message at such a vivacious rate and such a fervent rate that they can't ignore us any longer. Thank you. That, that's, again, such a powerful message that you're sharing with everybody. So you shared a little bit about how you got started and why you're so passionate, but when was that real aha moment? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you saw that aha moment, um, you know, that I had on Machu Picchu but I think, you know, the real, the real aha was just understanding that I can continue working in the corporate world and serve one purpose, or I can really truly do what I was meant to do on this earth. When you be who you are created to be, you start to unlock things you just can't even perceive and understand. I mean, to think that I could have chose a different path to stay in the corporate world. All of these chemicals and food industry giants would 
be probably continuing just like they are today as a result. If I didn't put those ideas out in the world that other people so carefully carried the message for me, but it was just, it was that moment that I finally started believing in myself, though, too, right? Because everyone around me saw this gift, right? But it was really that moment that I had to say, okay, I'm ready, you know? And, and so, really, it's, it's all about not letting yourself get in the way of your own success. Great. Thank you. I think that everyone here appreciates that message. Everyone has so much to share with the world. And along with that, what advice do you have for someone who is looking to do what you're doing? How do you get your voice heard? You've been so successful, and that's a lot of the questions we've had on Facebook. How can someone do what you do? Well, you know, the reason why I told you, you know, I had never been on social media is because it's true. You know, I've, I didn't go through any social media training. I didn't go through any marketing training. You know, I didn't go through any activism training. <laughs> I'm still learning. And, um, and so really, in order to do what I'm doing or anybody that you admire or you look up to or you want to model your career after, I would say learn about how they do it. Try to dissect the methods that they use. But also know that you're capable of doing this type of work and realize that just because there's one activist doesn't mean there can't be many. I think one of the things that I've learned from my dear friend Marie Forleo, she always says this, she says, imagine if the person who wanted to open the second Italian restaurant in the world realized that there was only, you know, that there was already an Italian restaurant, right? There's already an Italian restaurant, so why, can't, why do I have the right to open up a second one? You know, what gives me the right to also have an Italian restaurant? Imagine if, and how many, I mean, I love like 10 Italian restaurants, right? I'm sure many of you do too. And so it's that mentality that there's enough room in this world, there's enough abundance in this life for all of us to make changes in this space. There is so much work to be done, people. <laughs> the world is a sick place and we have to heal it. And so we need every single person out there doing what they're capable of doing, whether it's on this scale or another scale, or if it's at an individual level, or if it's in a school, or if it's in just your community, or a different country. And so you have to understand that do not let somebody else's success either get in your way and try to model yourself through understanding that you are going to make an impact no matter what because every time you shift the energy in the health direction in the healing direction the world shifts thank you i think that's such a, a testament to that we really are stronger together than we are alone and that we just ha can have such so much more of an influence if we work together and come together so I have one final question for you today. You know, we all have amazing times in our career, hard days in our career. What keeps you inspired every single day to keep doing what you do? And what message of inspiration do you have for our audience? Okay, so the thing that keeps me inspired every single day is actually he 
hearing feedback and meeting the people that are changing as a result of my work. When I was writing my book, I had no idea what that would do for the world. I had no idea what was happening. I just knew that I wanted to get this in a book and I wanted it to be a really intimate experience for people to go to sleep with it and, and learn this information and have it in written form and have it there and have all my habits that I love, you know, it includes all my 21 habits that I love to do myself. And so I really wanted other people to share that, but I never thought that doing something like that the best part of it would be actually after writing the book and actually getting to meet the individuals that are reading it and also the individuals that have no idea who I am or what I've done, have never heard of me, and they pick up the book and they just start reading it. And it's so inspiring to watch this revolution happening, this this momentum that you see right now with all of these food companies changing every single day, there's another announcement. And it just shows you that there is a tidal wave and we are just at the tipping point. And just knowing that we're just at this little itty bitty tipping point and there's gonna be so much more and it's gonna get so much bigger gives me inspiration. And so you guys can be part of that and you are part of that. And I hope that you recognize that and realize that you have such an important place in this world to change the health of our earth. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Please give one more round of applause for Vani Hari. It's really wonderful to be here. There's a big focus on personal responsibility in this program. I want to talk about the context in which that personal responsibility gets exercised. And I do this, um, I'm going to be talking a lot about obesity because that's the easiest way to talk about it. And as you've all heard, rates of uh, obesity have been going up in the United States. That's hardly news. Um, and the big question is what to do about it. And this is my favorite cartoon about the whole question of personal versus social responsibility. Um, this uh, Steve Kelly, who's a um, cartoonist for the late lamented um, Times Picayune in New Orleans, um, says, what about an, an anti-obesity program that really works as parental responsibility, a very personal responsibility approach to uh, problems of obesity? I look at it in a very different way. I look at it from the standpoint of food systems. And what I mean by food systems is the entire way in which food is produced and consumed in the United States, agriculture, food, nutrition, and public health. I don't think you as an individual or your clients can explain how the difficulty that people have managing their weight without understanding how agriculture works in this country and how the social environment leaves. Now, the other thing that you're being told over and over is that nobody can tell you what a healthy diet is. I think that's wrong. It's perfectly obvious what a healthy diet is. You need to ban banish, you need to balance calories, eat less, move more, eat plenty of vegetables and fruits, don't eat too much junk food, 
Enjoy everything you're eating, and please don't eat my book. If it seems more complicated than that, and it certainly does most of the time, it's surely because of the effect of that advice on the food industry. And this was beautifully expressed by an executive of Coca-Cola who gave an extremely revealing interview to Advertising Age in which he said obesity has become our Achilles heel. It used to be we didn't have, any, have to pay any attention to it. Now it just nags at us every single day. And I think there are very good reasons for that. And in order to explain the reasons, let's start from the dawn of rising rates of obesity, uh, which really didn't start until the early 1980s. So you have to ask the question, what happened in the early 1980s that made people either eat, eat more or move less or do both? So let me start with the move less part of it. Um, there is counterintuitively very, very little evidence that I can find that people are moving less now than they were in the early 1980s. I know it seems like all those electronic things are keeping everybody very sedentary, but it turns out there were plenty of things that kept people sedentary in the 1980s. And the best, <clears throat> the best data that I can find on this are from the Centers for Disease um, Control and Prevention, and they show, if anything, that between 1980 and the, and the present, rates of activity have gone up a little tiny bit. And if you look at it a different way, rates of inactivity have gone down a little tiny bit. I don't know whether to believe this or not. I'm not going to push this point too hard, except to say that there's just not much evidence one way or the other for much change. In contrast, there is an enormous amount of evidence that people are eating more now than they did in the early 1980s. And there are two sources of data for that. The first are data on calories in the food supply, which are the number of calories produced in the United States, less exports plus imports. In the early 1980s, it was 3,200 calories a day for every man, woman, and child and little, little tiny baby in the country. It's now 700 calories more a day. So there's a big increase in calories in the food supply. Now, that's an overestimation. And if you ask people uh, how many calories they're consuming, they lie. Um, and they, the amount that was reported in the early 1980s was 1,900 calories a day. It's now 2,100, uh, an increase of 200 calories a day. So the, the, what people report is almost certainly an underestimation. What's available is an overestimation. The truth is somewhere in between. And most studies of the number, of the increase in calories that would be uh, required to account for current levels of obesity is somewhere in the order of 350 calories a day more. So the ballpark figure makes sense here. So now we have to ask the question, how come? Um, how is it that people started eating more in the early 1980s than they ever used to before? And I think it has to do with deregulation. 
And I'm going to talk about three different kinds of deregulation. The first is deregulation of agriculture. Um, we, in the 1970s, we had a system of agricultural supports that paid farmers not to grow more food. It paid farmers to keep fields fallow and conserve land. Uh, starting in the 1970s, that changed. Farmers were told that subsidies would depend on the amount of food they grew. Our farmers are very smart. They started growing more food in order to take advantage of those subsidies. And the result was mountains of corn and soybeans and so forth in a sea of farm subsidies that nobody seems to be able to get rid of. Um, what that did was to increase the number of calories in the food supply, just as I mentioned before. If you look at a longitudinal plot of calories in the food supply from 1910 to, uh, this one goes to the year 2000, um, it stayed at about 3,200 calories per capita per day uh, for decades until the early 1980s. And even if, as the Department of Agriculture maintains, about 1,000 of those calories are wasted, it's still great surplus. What that does is make the food industry very competitive for selling the, its products in an environment in which there are too many calories. But there was a second form of deregulation that made this situation even worse, and that was a deregulation of Wall Street. Prior to the early 1980s, um, Wall Street valued corporations for their ability to produce long-term but slow return, returns on investment. You remember blue-chip stocks? You never hear a word about blue-chip stocks anymore. That's because the shareholder value movement, which started in the early 1980s, um, was pressure on corporations to increase returns to investors um, and increase immediate returns uh, to investors. And we see the result of that kind of pressure on Wall Street right now. But it was a particularly pro a problem for food corporations, which were already trying to sell products in an environment in which there were 3,900 calories a day per person, roughly twice average need. Um, so that what that did was force corporations to have to grow. They not only had to make a profit, but they had to grow their profit. And it wasn't that corporations were forced to sit around conference tables saying, how can we make people fat? They were forced to sit around a conference table saying, how are we going to sell our products in an environment in which there's so much food available and in which we have to grow our profits every 90 days? Well, they got one break, and that was uh, deregulation of food marketing, which occurred also in the early 1980s when President Reagan was elected. Um, and at that time, food marketing um, became a permitted a different kind of marketing so that it was possible to market directly to kids in ways that it hadn't been before. There was also in the subsequent years deregulation of health claims, dietary supplements, and a great deal of erosion of Federal Food and Drug Administration funding and authority. Um, and the result of that was a basically deregulated market for food marketing. 
And the result of all of this was that society changed in ways that most people didn't even notice, uh, starting in the early 1980s because food was so cheap, because there was so much of it. People began eating out more. Food outside the home has more calories than food inside the home. Um, and much of that outside the home food was fast food. Uh, the, the cheapness of food because of the quantity enabled fast food restaurants to multiply and fast food just got everywhere. And it has more calories than food you might make at home. The second uh, way in which society changed was the increase in large size portions. This is my former doctoral student, now Dr. Lisa Young, at her dissertation um, uh, presentation in which she she had gone out and measured the changes in the sizes of food portions. Nobody had ever done that before or really quantified what had happened. And the cup on the left, the white one, is a standard Department of Agriculture serving size for a soft drink. It's eight ounces. It holds 100 calories. Uh, the other cups were ones that she bought at the Angelica movie theater downtown. The double gulp, if it doesn't have too much ice in it, uh, has 800 calories and 64 ounces. And the um, research shows that that cup is not passed down the aisle in the movie theater and shared among everybody who's there. It's consumed by one person. If there was one thing that I could teach the entire world, it would be larger portions have more calories? Let me tell you, it's not intuitively obvious. Now, here's Lisa's, here's Lisa's research published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. And the, I want you to point, to point to the bars at the bottom, which show the increase in large size portions. And what's interesting about that is that the portion sizes have increased in parallel with the number of calories per day in the food supply, not too surprising, and with percent of overweight in the population. Um, highly correlated. Um, from my point of view, you don't need a more complicated explanation for obesity than larger portions. It's just really as simple as that. Um, of course, the reasons for the larger portions and consuming them are quite different. Another f factor very, very important in uh, the environment was putting food everywhere. And I don't know, for those of you in New York, when did Dwayne Reed become a grocery store? <clears throat> or for that matter, Bed Bath & Beyond, or my favorite is Staples, which now has a business office snacks section. Um, the more food that's available, the more food people buy. It's a big promoter of eating more. So are low prices. And I like to ask the question, if you go into McDonald's with $5, you can buy five hamburgers or one salad. What's that about? Just think about it for a minute. It's just bizarre. And it has a lot to do with the way that we subsidize some foods in the food supply and not others. And if poor people, and you're dealing with poor clients who don't have a lot of money, if they don't want to eat fruits and vegetables because they think they're really expensive, you know what? 
they're right. Um, the Department of Commerce has done plots of the indexed price of fruits and vegetables since 1980, and it shows an increase in the index price uh, of 40% since then, whereas the index price of beer, butter, and sodas has gone down by 15 to 30%. What's that about? Once again, it's what the government supports and what the government doesn't support. So all in all, what's been created is an environment in which um, the, you know, unwillingly, not out of any direct, um, you know, this wasn't done deliberately. It happened as collateral damage of the way our food system works. Uh, we live in an environment that encourages people to eat more than is good for them uh, or that they need. Now, these are the kinds of things that a lawyer in San Francisco named Michelle Simon wrote about in her book, Appetite for Profit, uh, how the food industry undermines our health and what to do about it. And in it, the part in that book that just most grabbed me was her account of the enormous pressures on food companies from advocates like me who want them to stop marketing to children, from regulators who want to regulate them as much as they can, from lawyers who want to sue them, and from Wall Street that simply wants them to make more money every quarter. And at first, food companies said, we don't have to do anything about this. This has nothing to do with us. Then they went through all the stages of death and denial. And then they began to change their products. And then they began fighting back. And I want to talk about the ways that they changed their products to advertise the healthfulness of their products and the way they're fighting back these days against public health measures. Um, so let me start with the most obvious way in which food companies sell products, and that's with advertising. It's very difficult for somebody like me who's not in the industry to get figures on the amount of money that's spent to market individual food products but every now and then, advertising age uh, comes up with a couple of hints. And these are some figures pulled out of the June 2012 advertising age. $267 million to advertise just Coca-Cola. $35 million just for Tostitos. $51 million just for Pop-Tarts. If you've got kids and your kids want Pop-Tarts, do you think this might have something to do with it? I do. Um, and then health claims on food packages. <clears throat> Every company wants a health claim on its food package because everybody wants to be healthy. And we all want to buy healthy products for ourselves and for our children. And so these are just a few of my favorite products. Um, gummy bears that are organic. Uh, Reduced fat peanut butter. I happen to love peanut butter, but this one's really silly. Uh, no trans fat in Frito-Lay snacks. And Fruity Pebbles has become your best source of vitamin D. And Cocoa Krispies will keep your kid from getting sick. Um, what the, there are now a lot of people doing research on marketing. You know, most of these kinds of the things that the basis of marketing. Foods is all proprietary. The companies have it, but they don't talk about it. But recently, researchers have begun looking at it, and what they show is that a health claim on food packages makes people think the, that the calories are low. Uh, if, you, uh, if you have an organic sign on a food package, people automatically assume that it's a low-calorie health food 
product. Um, so there's some education that needs to be done on that. But these are the kinds of things that encouraged a colleague and I uh, to write an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association asking whether the food industry can play a constructive role in the obesity epidemic. And I think it's fair to say that we're dubious. And the reason that we're dubious is because the goals of industry and the goals of public health are really not the same. The goal of industry is really very simple. It's to sell as many products as possible and make as much money as possible and grow profits every 90 days. The goal of public health is to make people healthy. Uh, and those are not necessarily the same. Um, so given that situation, let's look at some of the efforts that are being made now to try to encourage people to be healthier. And I want to say that I'm a great admirer of Michelle Obama and what she has done. Um, for, for somebody like me who, is, who really cares about child health in this country more than anything else, uh, the idea that the First Lady of the United States would take as her goal during her time in office to solve the problem of childhood obesity within a generation is extremely moving to me. Um, and what I want to talk about is what she was up against. I don't know whether she knew what she was up against when she took this on, but I thought it was really courageous of her. One of the first things that happened in the Obama administration um, was that uh, President Obama appointed a task force on childhood obesity, and its report came out in May 2010. And that report established the agenda for Mrs. Obama's Let's Move campaign, uh, which was announced in February uh, 2010. And uh, the... Um, the obesity task force reports had 70 recommendations, and a few of them were uh, on subjects that are very interesting to me and that I'm going to talk about, uh, on school food. One of Mrs. Obama's major um, thrusts of the Let's Move campaign was to try to improve school food. And the obesity task force report, which is really worth reading, talked about trying to establish dietary principles for school food, meal standards, and nutrition standards for school food. I'm going to have something to say about each of those. And then it has a lot of recommendations about how to encourage healthy eating and how to dis discourage unhealthy eating. So let's start with the famous My Plate that you've already seen. And I want to talk about what I think is good about this. This was the, this were the dietary guidelines, um, the result of that, that came out in 2011. I just love the first um, advice to consumers that came out with this, which is enjoy your food but eat less. I thought that was really good advice. Avoid oversized portions, really good advice. And I'm particularly fond of the last one, which is to drink water instead of sugary drinks. So these um, messages that came out with my plate, it seems to me, were very, very important and well worth uh, looking at. Eat half your plate, fruits and vegetables. Good idea. Um, so that set the kind of overall principles for what was supposed to happen with school food. So Mrs. Obama didn't make up the idea that something needed to be do, 
done about school food. Actually, uh, the Department of Agriculture had been working on that for a few years. And in 2007 and again in 2009, the Institute of Medicine, a think tank in Washington, had had committees working on developing standards for school meals. The 2009 report had a lot of recommendations in it, but there are two that I want to point to. One was they suggested limiting starchy vegetables, potatoes and so forth, to two servings a week, not because they thought they were bad, but because they wanted to open up the possibility of introducing other vegetables into school meals and broadening kids' palates for uh, healthier foods. They also required um, at least a quarter of a cup of of tomato paste to count as a vegetable serving. Um, actually, I think it's half a cup because all other uh, vegetables to count as a serving are half a cup. Um, so in um, 2010, right early in the Obama administration, Congress passed the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, uh, which authorized the USDA to set nutrition standards, not only for federally supported school meals, but also for all food uh, served in schools. And in 2012, the Department of Agriculture came out with its, uh, with its rules and talked about what the new rules were going to be. And these were very, very close to those that had been recommended by the Institute of Medicine. So in a sense, this was a science and po policy-based approach to setting these standards. Well, the first thing that happened was that food companies started lobbying against them. And they reportedly spent $5.6 million uh, to lobby in Congress against the standards. And the result of that was that the Senate, inter when that didn't work, they went right to Congress. And the Senate intervened and said and saved the potato on school lunch menus. Um, so it passed a rule in the agriculture spending bill that the Department of Agriculture could not limit the number of times that French fries could be served during a school week. And then they also said that no funds could be used to require crediting of tomato paste and puree based on any kind of volume standards, meaning that even a teaspoon of tomato paste on pizza would now count as a vegetable serving. Um, so the cartoonists had a field day with this, uh, that's no vegetable. Um, and I also thought that this sent the message, if you don't like the science-based and policy-based rules, you just go right to your senator and get it overturned. Well, now, as I'm sure many of you know, there's an enormous fuss about school-based calorie standards. And many, many uh, maybe you've seen the video made by some high school students showing that the new lunch standards were so limiting that they were fainting during their physical activity. Uh, the standards are 650 calories from kindergarten to five, seven, 700 from for kids age six to eight, and high school students get 850 calories for lunch. Um, I don't know about you, but 850 calories ought to be enough to get even the biggest boy in high school through a couple of hours of school. And the but that's not how Republican congressmen see it. And two Republican congressmen, one from Kansas and one from Iowa, have introduced the No Hungry Kids Act to overturn this whole thing. 
Um, and the reasons for it are very straightforward. Uh, President Obama's nanny state, if they can invade the lunch tray of school kids, what's next? The new regulations are a one-size-fit-all encroachment of our liberties. Now, there's the personal responsibility argument writ large. No one-size-fits-all, um, and they're using that not to promote kids' hit. Um, kids' health, but to intervene in an election year uh, in a very, very tightly fought um, election. Um, this is not about health. This is about election year politics. And if some of you think that 850 calories may not be enough to eat for lunch, Center for Science and the Public Interest has come out with uh, this infographic. Um, and they point out that if you look at the meals they're showing here, if those meals had been the ones that were on the menu, instead of fruits, vegetables, and other healthy foods, the Republican congressman would probably not be complaining so much. Let's talk about Mayor Bloomberg. In looking at the health of people in New York, they can see that there's a lot of uh, type 2 diabetes that's related to obesity. And they've been looking over the past several years for ways to try to improve the environment to make the healthy choice the easy choice for people. And so that's where the soda cap came in. Mayor Bloomberg introduced a soda cap. Uh, 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 a, to make a 16-ounce soda the default. I actually thought it was too big. I thought they should have made the 8-ounce soda the default. But that's just me. So he was being kind of relaxed about it. A 16-ounce soda has almost 200 calories, almost 2 ounces of sugar. Um, and... It, uh, if you look at its history, in the 1950s, it was considered a big soda and large enough to serve three. That's how much portion sizes have changed. Um, and we really need to know that. Well, the first thing the soda industry did was to attack the science. And they had big full-page ads in the New York Times saying this was junk science, there were no facts that linked sodas to obesity, and this was just ridiculous. Then they attacked the critic. I don't, I don't know how many of you saw that ad. I just loved it. And the best thing, I mean, Mayor Bloomberg's a smart guy, and he was asked about it at a press conference, and he said, oh, no, I would never wear a dress like that. It's so unflattering. I thought that was really funny, and I've cited the source of that there. There was a reporter for the New York Times who was at the press conference and heard that. Um, well, the food, in the soda industry went to town on this. They just really went berserk. I have no idea how much money they put into this campaign, but it involved social media, TV ads, videos in movie theaters, petitions. Um, the petitioner who's shown in this slide, uh, one of our uh, graduate students at NYU um, saw them, took a lot of pictures, and asked them how much they were being paid. And they were being paid $30 an hour to collect signatures on a petition uh, to try to defeat the soda initiative. A lot of money went into this. Um, and I, that's my picture of the trucks. What really amazed me was that at my home, I got a mailing. 
asking me to sign this, the anti-soda cap petitions and notice the personal responsibility message in this. I can make my own beverage choices. I'm taking a stand to protect my freedom of choice. I submit that this is not about freedom of choice. This is about marketing sodas. Um, because would you rather have Mayor Bloomberg make the decision about size or soda companies? That's really what it's about. Um, PepsiCo, which owns Mountain Dew, has blanketed the city with posters that this is prohibition and these are taking away people's freedom to choose. Um, but this is only a soda cap designed to make it easier for individuals to exercise personal choice. What about taxes? I want to say something about soda taxes um, because there's quite a bit of evidence that taxing cigarettes worked and a lot of people concerned about sugary drinks and their relationship to obesity think that taxes might work for sugary drinks too and they're an easy target because they're sugars and no nutrients and they have no nutritional value whatsoever. So let's look at soda industry lobbying on the subject of soda taxes. Uh, this was from the Los Angeles Times which showed that they only spent a few million dollars a year on lobbying until New York State Mayor Patterson tried to introduce a soda tax in New York State when they increased their lobbying budget to $40 million. PepsiCo in 2011 spent $29 million on lobbying, although that was on all issues, not just soda taxes. Well, why are soda companies fighting so hard? Um, one of the reasons is that Americans are buying many fewer sodas than they used to. You'd never know it from going to a grocery store, but there it is. If you look at the change in total volume of soft drinks consumed between uh, in the last I don't know, in the middle of this decade, um, it went down in the U.S. and up everywhere else in the world. Um, now, that's kind of interesting because obesity rates have been going up pretty much everywhere in the world, too. That's us on the top on the top line. But in most countries of the world, as soon as people get a little money, they start eating junk food, and they start eating American junk food, uh, and weights go up possibly coincidentally. Um, so nearly every American food company is having a lot of trouble increasing its sales in the United States and is moving its marketing overseas. So I've just, I'll just give you a few examples of it. Pepsi's profits almost doubled on overseas beverages. Coca-Cola is having strong earnings in places like India. India has 1.2 billion people, but not enough of them drink Coca-Cola. Big market. McDonald's is expanding in India and China. I mean, I, I've got, I could show you dozens of these. Uh, all of these food companies are moving their marketing overseas. Um, so that's the context in which your advice uh, to your clients and your own personal choices are taking place. And I think that there's a lot you can do as an individual to make those personal choices and to make that personal advice count. You can opt out of a lot of this. You can focus on eating food, not products. You certainly can focus on smaller portions, buy local sustainable, grow your own food, cook at home, and teach kids to cook. That's just the best thing in the world to do. But I 
I also think that as an individual who cares about these issues, you also need to participate in social responsibility for creating a food environment that makes it easier for people to make these kinds of healthy personal choices. And for that, you've got to get involved in politics. And by politics, um, there are lots of ways of doing it, some of them really fun and some of them less fun. The fun ones are things like farmers markets and urban farming, local farming, um, and then it gets more difficult when you start working on trying to change the way the agricultural support system works, but it's still worth uh, doing. And you can get involved in politics in the whole range that I was talking about from agriculture to public health. Um, you can work in your local schools. That's a really good way to do it. Schools all over the country are improving their meals and the new legislation makes it easier for them to do so. You can work on neighborhood access to healthier foods. You can establish a better safety net for people who don't have very much money. You can work on issues related to marketing to children and food labels and those kinds of things. And then think about maybe some way, sometime, of dealing with the really big ones, which are somehow cleaning up the corruption in our election campaign laws, which we're seeing in action right now, and then cleaning up the corruption on Wall Street, uh, which are really the basis of all of the problems that we have to deal with. So I'll leave you there with that. I appreciate so much the opportunity to talk to you. Go out and do it. Hello to all of you. It's really wonderful to be here. There's a big focus on personal responsibility in this program. I want to talk about the context in which that personal responsibility gets exercised. And I do this, um, I'm going to be talking a lot about obesity because that's the easiest way to talk about it. And as you've all heard, rates of uh, obesity have been going up in the United States. That's hardly news. Um, and the big question is what to do about it. It. And this is my favorite cartoon about the whole question of personal versus social responsibility. Um, this uh, Steve Kelly, who's a um, cartoonist for the late lamented um, Times Picayune in New Orleans, um, says, what about an, an anti-obesity program that really works as parental responsibility, a very personal responsibility approach to uh, problems of obesity? I look at it in a very different way. I look at it from the standpoint of food systems. And what I mean by food systems is the entire way in which food is produced and consumed in the United States, agriculture, food, nutrition, and public health. I don't think you as an individual or your clients can explain how the difficulty that people have managing their weight without understanding how agriculture works in this country and how the social environment leaves. Now, the other thing that you're being told over and over is that nobody can tell you what a healthy diet is. I think that's wrong. It's perfectly obvious what a healthy diet is. You need to ban banish, you need to balance calories, eat less, move more, eat plenty of vegetables and fruits, don't eat too much junk food, enjoy everything you're eating, and please don't eat my book. If it seems more complicated than that, and it certainly does most of the time, it's surely because of the effect of that advice on the food industry. And this was beautifully expressed by an executive of Coca-Cola who gave an extremely revealing interview to Advertising Age in which she said obesity has become our Achilles.
Achilles heel. It used to be we didn't have, any, have to pay any attention to it. Now it just nags at us every single day. And I think there are very good reasons for that. And in order to explain the reasons, let's start from the dawn of rising rates of obesity, uh, which really didn't start until the early 1980s. So you have to ask the question, what happened in the early 1980s that made people either eat, eat more or move less or do both? So let me start with the move less part of it. Um, there is counterintuitively very, very little evidence that I can find that people are moving less now than they were in the early 1980s. I know it seems like all those electronic things are keeping everybody very sedentary, but it turns out there were plenty of things that kept people sedentary in the 1980s. And the best, <clears throat> the best data that I can find on this are from the Centers for Disease um, Control and Prevention, and they show, if anything, that between 1980 and the, and the present, rates of activity have gone up a little tiny bit. And if you look at it a different way, rates of inactivity have gone down a little tiny bit. I don't know whether to believe this or not. I'm not going to push this point too hard, except to say that there's just not much evidence one way or the other for much change. In contrast, there is an enormous amount of evidence that people are eating more now than they did in the early 1980s. And there are two sources of data for that. The first are data on calories in the food supply, which are the number of calories produced in the United States, less exports plus imports. In the early 1980s, it was 3,200 calories a day for every man, woman, and child, and little, little tiny baby in the country. It's now 700 calories more a day. So there's a big increase in calories in the food supply. Now, that's an overestimation. And if you ask people uh, how many calories they're consuming, they lie. Um, and they, the amount that was reported in the early 1980s was 1,900 calories a day. It's now 2,100, uh, an increase of 200 calories a day. So the, the, what people report is almost certainly an underestimation. What's available is an overestimation. The truth is somewhere in between. And most studies of the number, of the increase in calories that would be uh, required to account for current levels of obesity is somewhere in the order of 350 calories a day more. So the ballpark figure makes sense here. So now we have to ask the question, how come? Um, how is it that people started eating more in the early 1980s than they ever used to before? And I think it has to do with deregulation. And I'm going to talk about three different kinds of deregulation. The first is deregulation of agriculture. Um, we, in the 1970s, we had a system of agricultural supports that paid farmers not to grow more food. It paid farmers to keep fields fallow and conserve land. Uh, starting in the 1970s, that changed. Farmers were told that subsidies would depend on the amount of food they grew. Our farmers are very smart. They started growing more food in order to take advantage of those subsidies. And the result was mountains of corn and soybeans and so forth in a sea of farm subsidies that nobody seems to be able to get rid of. Um, 
What that did was to increase the number of calories in the food supply, just as I mentioned before. If you look at a longitudinal plot of calories in the food supply from 1910 to, uh, this one goes to the year 2000, um, it stayed at about 3,200 calories per capita per day uh, for decades until the early 1980s. And even if, as the Department of Agriculture maintains, about 1,000 of those calories are wasted, it's still great surplus. What that does is make the food industry very competitive for selling the, its products in an environment in which there are too many calories. But there was a second form of deregulation that made this situation even worse, and that was a deregulation of Wall Street. Prior to the early 1980s, um, Wall Street valued corporations for their ability to produce long-term but slow return, returns on investment. You remember blue-chip stocks? You never hear a word about blue-chip stocks anymore. That's because the shareholder value movement, which started in the early 1980s, um, was pressure on corporations to increase returns to investors um, and increase immediate returns uh, to investors. And we see the result of that kind of pressure on Wall Street right now. But it was a particularly pro a problem for food corporations, which were already trying to sell products in an environment in which there were 3,900 calories a day per person, roughly twice average need. Um, so that what that did was force corporations to have to grow. They not only had to make a profit, but they had to grow their profit. And it wasn't that corporations were forced to sit around conference tables saying, how can we make people fat? They were forced to sit around a conference table saying, how are we going to sell our products in an environment in which there's so much food available and in which we have to grow our profits every 90 days? Well, they got one break, and that was uh, deregulation of food marketing, which occurred also in the early 1980s when President Reagan was elected. Um, and at that time, food marketing um, became uh, permitted a different kind of marketing so that it was possible to market directly to kids in ways that it hadn't been before. There was also in the subsequent years deregulation of health claims, dietary supplements, and a great deal of erosion of federal Food and Drug Administration funding and authority. Um, and the result of that was a basically deregulated market for food marketing. And the result of all of this was that society changed in ways that most people didn't even notice, uh, starting in the early 1980s because food was so cheap, because there was so much of it. People began eating out more. Food outside the home has more calories than food inside the home. Um, and much of that outside the home food was fast food. Uh, the, the cheapness of food because of the quantity enabled fast food restaurants to multiply and fast food just got everywhere and it has more calories than food you might make at home. The second uh, way in which society changed was the increase in large size portions. This is my former doctoral student, now Dr. Lisa Young, at her dissertation um, uh, 
presentation in which she, she had gone out and measured the changes in the sizes of food portions. Nobody had ever done that before or really quantified what had happened. And the cup on the left, the white one, is a standard Department of Agriculture serving size for a soft drink. It's eight ounces. It holds 100 calories. Uh, the other cups were ones that she bought at the Angelica Movie Theater downtown. The double gulp, if it doesn't have too much ice in it, uh, has 800 calories and 64 ounces. And the um, research shows that that cup is not passed down the aisle in the movie theater and shared among everybody who's there. It's consumed by one person. If there was one thing that I could teach the entire world, it would be larger portions have more calories? Let me tell you, it's not intuitively obvious. Now, here's Lisa's, here's Lisa's research published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. And the, I want you to point, to point to the bars at the bottom, which show the increase in large size portions. And what's interesting about that is that the portion sizes have increased in parallel with the number of calories per day in the food supply, not too surprising, and with percent of overweight in the population. Um, highly correlated. Um, from my point of view, you don't need a more complicated explanation for obesity than larger portions. It's just really as simple as that. Um, of course, the reasons for the larger portions and consuming them are quite different. Another factor, very, very important in uh, the environment, was putting food everywhere. And I don't know, for those of you in New York, when did Dwayne Reed become a grocery store? <clears throat> or for that matter, Bed Bath & Beyond, or my favorite is Staples, which now has a business office snacks section. Um, the more food that's available, the more food people buy. It's a big promoter of eating more. So are low prices. And I like to ask the question, if you go into McDonald's with $5, you can buy five hamburgers or one salad. What's that about? Just think about it for a minute. It's just bizarre. And it has a lot to do with the way that we subsidize some foods in the food supply and not others. And if poor people, and you're dealing with poor clients who don't have a lot of money, if they don't want to eat fruits and vegetables because they think they're really expensive, you know what? They're right. Um, the Department of Commerce has done plots of the indexed price of fruits and vegetables since 1980, and it shows an increase in the index price uh, of 40% since then, whereas the index price of beer, butter, and sodas has gone down by 15 to 30%. What's that about? Once again, it's what the government supports and what the government doesn't support. So all in all, what's been created is an environment in which um, the, you know, unwillingly, not out of any direct, um, you know, this wasn't done deliberately. It happened as collateral damage of the way our food system works. Uh, we live in an environment that encourages people to eat more than is good for them uh, or that they need. Now, these are the kinds of things that a lawyer in San Francisco named Michelle Simon wrote about in her book, Appetite for Profit, uh, how the food industry undermines our health and what to do about it. And in it, 
the part in that book that just most grabbed me was her account of the enormous pressures on food companies from advocates like me who want them to stop marketing to children, from regulators who want to regulate them as much as they can, from lawyers who want to sue them, and from Wall Street that simply wants them to make more money every quarter. And at first, food companies said, we don't have to do anything about this. This has nothing to do with us. Then they went through all the stages of death and denial. And then they began to change their products, and then they began fighting back. And I want to talk about the ways that they changed their products to advertise the healthfulness of their products and the way they're fighting back these days against public health measures. Um, so let me start with the most obvious way in which food companies sell products, and that's with advertising. It's very difficult for somebody like me who's not in the industry to get figures on the amount of money that's spent to market individual food products but every now and then, advertising age uh, comes up with a couple of hints. And these are some figures pulled out of the June 2012 advertising age. $267 million to advertise just Coca-Cola. $35 million just for Tostitos. $51 million just for Pop-Tarts. If you've got kids and your kids want Pop-Tarts, do you think this might have something to do with it? I do. Um, and then health claims on food packages. <clears throat> every company wants a health claim on its food package because everybody wants to be healthy. And we all want to buy healthy products for ourselves and for our children. And so these are just a few of my favorite products. Um, gummy bears that are organic. Uh, Reduced fat peanut butter. I happen to love peanut butter, but this one's really silly. Uh, no trans fat in Frito-Lay snacks. And Fruity Pebbles has become your best source of vitamin D. And Cocoa Krispies will keep your kid from getting sick. Um, what the, there are now a lot of people doing research on marketing. You know, most of these kinds of the things that the basis of marketing. Foods is all proprietary. The companies have it, but they don't talk about it. But recently, researchers have begun looking at it, and what they show is that a health claim on food packages makes people think the, that the calories are low. Uh, if, you, uh, if you have an organic sign on a food package, people automatically assume that it's a low-calorie health food product. Um, so there's some education that needs to be done on that. But these are the kinds of things that encouraged a colleague and I uh, to write an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association asking whether the food industry can play a constructive role in the obesity epidemic. And I think it's fair to say that we're dubious. And the reason that we're dubious is because the goals of industry and the goals of public health are really not the same. The goal of industry is really very simple. It's to sell as many products as possible and make as much money as possible and grow profits every 90 days. The goal of public health is to make people healthy. Uh, and those are not necessarily the same. Um, so given that situation, let's look at some of the efforts that are being made now to try to encourage people to be healthier. And I want to say that I'm a great admirer of Michelle Obama and what she has done. Um, for 
for somebody like me who, is, who really cares about child health in this country more than anything else, uh, the idea that the First Lady of the United States would take as her goal during her time in office to solve the problem of childhood obesity within a generation is extremely moving to me. Um, and what I want to talk about is what she was up against. I don't know whether she knew what she was up against when she took this on, but I thought it was really courageous of her. One of the first things that happened in the Obama administration um, was that uh, President Obama appointed a task force on childhood obesity, and its report came out in May 2010. And that report established the agenda for Mrs. Obama's Let's Move campaign, uh, which was announced in February uh, 2010. And the, um, the obesity task force reports had 70 recommendations, and a few of them were on subjects that are very interesting to me and that I'm going to talk about, uh, on school food. One of Mrs. Obama's major um, thrusts of the Let's Move campaign was to try to improve school food. And the Obesity Task Force report, which is really worth reading, talked about trying to establish dietary principles for school food, meal standards, and nutrition standards for school food. I'm going to have something to say about each of those. And then it has a lot of recommendations about how to encourage healthy eating and how to discourage unhealthy eating. So let's start with the famous My Plate that you've already seen. And I want to talk about what I think is good about this. This was the, this were the dietary guidelines, um, the result of that, that came out in 2011. I just love the first um, advice to consumers that came out with this, which is enjoy your food but eat less. I thought that was really good advice. Avoid oversized portions, really good advice. And I'm particularly fond of the last one, which is to drink water instead of sugary drinks. So these um, messages that came out with my plate, it seems to me, were very, very important and well worth uh, looking at. Eat half your plate, fruits and vegetables. Good idea. Um, So that set the kind of overall principles for what was supposed to happen with school food. So Mrs. Obama didn't make up the idea that something needed to be done about school food. Actually, uh, the Department of Agriculture had been working on that for a few years. And in 2007 and again in 2009, the Institute of Medicine, a think tank in Washington, had had committees working on developing standards for school meals. The 2009 report had a lot of recommendations in it, but there are two that I want to point to. One was they suggested limiting starchy vegetables, potatoes and so forth, to two servings a week, not because they thought they were bad, but because they wanted to open up the possibility of introducing other vegetables into school meals and broadening kids' palates for uh, healthier foods. They also required um, at least a quarter of a cup of tomato paste to count as a vegetable serving. Um, Actually, I think it's half a cup, because all other uh, vegetables to count as a serving are half a cup. Um, So 
in um, 2010, right early in the Obama administration, Congress passed the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, uh, which authorized the USDA to set nutrition standards, not only for federally supported school meals, but also for all food uh, served in schools. And in 2012, the Department of Agriculture came out with its, uh, with its rules and talked about what the new rules were going to be. And these were very, very close to those that had been recommended by the Institute of Medicine. So in a sense, this was a science and po policy-based approach to setting these standards. Well, the first thing that happened was that food companies started lobbying against them. And they reportedly spent $5.6 million uh, to lobby in Congress against the standards. And the result of that was that the Senate, inter when that didn't work, they went right to Congress. And the Senate intervened and said and saved the potato on school lunch menus. Um, so it passed a rule in the agriculture spending bill that the Department of Agriculture could not limit the number of times that French fries could be served during a school week. And then they also said that no funds could be used to require crediting of tomato paste and puree based on any kind of volume standards, meaning that even a teaspoon of tomato paste on pizza would now count as a vegetable serving. Um, so the cartoonists had a field day with this, uh, that's no vegetable. Um, and I also thought that this sent the message, if you don't like the science-based and policy-based rules, you just go right to your senator and get it overturned. Well, now, as I'm sure many of you know, there's an enormous fuss about school-based calorie standards. And many, many uh, maybe you've seen the video made by some high school students showing that the new lunch standards were so limiting that they were fainting during their physical activity. Uh, the standards are 650 calories from kindergarten to five. 700 from for kids age six to eight, and high school students get 850 calories for lunch. Um, I don't know about you, but 850 calories ought to be enough to get even the biggest boy in high school through a couple of hours of school. And the But that's not how Republican congressmen see it. And two Republican congressmen, one from Kansas and one from Iowa, have introduced the No Hungry Kids Act to overturn this whole thing. Um, and the reasons for it are very straightforward. Uh, President Obama's nanny state, if they can invade the lunch tray of school kids, what's next? The new regulations are a one-size-fit-all encroachment of our liberties. Now, there's the personal responsibility argument writ large. No one-size-fits-all. Um, and they're using that not to promote kids' hit, um, kids' health, but to intervene in an election year uh, in a very, very tightly fought um, election. Um, this is not about health. This is about election year politics. And if some of you think that 850 calories may not be enough to eat for lunch, Center for Science and the Public Interest has come out with uh, this infographic. Um, and they point out that if you look at the meals they're showing here, if those meals had been the ones that were on the menu, instead of fruits, vegetables, and other healthy foods, the Republican congressman would probably not be complaining so much.
Let's talk about Mayor Bloomberg. In looking at the health of people in New York, they can see that there's a lot of uh, type 2 diabetes that's related to obesity. And they've been looking over the past several years for ways to try to improve the environment to make the healthy choice the easy choice for people. And so that's where the soda cap came in. Mayor Bloomberg introduced a soda cap, a, a, a a, to make a 16-ounce soda the default. I actually thought it was too big. I thought they should have made the 8-ounce soda the default. But that's just me. So he was being kind of relaxed about it. A 16-ounce soda has almost 200 calories, almost 2 ounces of sugar. Um, and it, uh, if you look at its history, in the 1950s, it was considered a big soda and large enough to serve three. That's how much portion sizes have changed. Um, and we really need to know that. Well, the first thing the soda industry did was to attack the science. And they had big full-page ads in the New York Times saying this was junk science, there were no facts that linked sodas to obesity, and this was just ridiculous. Then they attacked the critic. I don't, I don't know how many of you saw that ad. I just loved it. And the best thing, I mean, Mayor Bloomberg's a smart guy, and he was asked about it at a press conference, and he said, oh, no, I would never wear a dress like that. It's so unflattering. I thought that was really funny, and I've cited the source of that there. There was a reporter for the New York Times who was at the press conference and heard that. Um, well, the food, in the soda industry went to town on this. They just really went berserk. I have no idea how much money they put into this campaign, but it involved social media, TV ads, videos in movie theaters, petitions. Um, the petitioner who's shown in this slide, uh, one of our uh, graduate students at NYU um, saw them, took a lot of pictures, and asked them how much they were being paid. And they were being paid $30 an hour to collect signatures on a petition uh, to try to defeat the soda initiative. A lot of money went into this. Um, and I, that's my picture of the trucks. What really amazed me was that at my home, I got a mailing asking me to sign this, the anti-soda cap petitions and notice the personal responsibility message in this. I can make my own beverage choices. I'm taking a stand to protect my freedom of choice. I submit that this is not about freedom of choice. This is about marketing sodas. Um, because would you rather have Mayor Bloomberg make the decision about size or soda companies? That's really what it's about. Um, PepsiCo, which owns Mountain Dew, has blanketed the city with posters that this is prohibition and these are taking away people's freedom to choose. Um, but this is only a soda cap designed to make it easier for individuals to exercise personal choice. What about taxes? I want to say something about soda taxes um, because there's quite a bit of evidence that taxing cigarettes worked and a lot of people concerned about sugary drinks and their relationship to obesity think that taxes might work for sugary drinks too and they're an easy target because they're sugars and no nutrients and they have no nutritional value whatsoever. So let's look at soda industry lobbying on the subject of soda taxes. Uh, this was from the Los Angeles Times 
Times, which showed that they only spent a few million dollars a year on lobbying until New York State Mayor Patterson tried to introduce a soda tax in New York State when they increased their lobbying budget to $40 million. PepsiCo in 2011 spent $29 million on lobbying, although that was on all issues, not just soda taxes. Well, why are soda companies fighting so hard? Um, one of the reasons is that Americans are buying many fewer sodas than they used to. You'd never know it from going to a grocery store, but there it is. If you look at the change in total volume of soft drinks consumed between uh, in the last I don't know, in the middle of this decade, um, it went down in the U.S. and up everywhere else in the world. Um, now, that's kind of interesting because obesity rates have been going up pretty much everywhere in the world, too. That's us on the top on the top line. But in most countries of the world, as soon as people get a little money, they start eating junk food, and they start eating American junk food, uh, and weights go up possibly coincidentally. Um, so nearly every American food company is having a lot of trouble increasing its sales in the United States and is moving its marketing overseas. So I've just, I'll just give you a few examples of it. Pepsi's profits almost doubled on overseas beverages. Coca-Cola is having strong earnings in places like India. India has 1.2 billion people, but not enough of them drink Coca-Cola. Big market. McDonald's is expanding in India and China. I mean, I, I've got, I could show you dozens of these. Uh, all of these food companies are moving their marketing overseas. Um, so that's the context in which your advice uh, to your clients and your own personal choices are taking place. And I think that there's a lot you can do as an individual to make those personal choices and to make that personal advice count. You can opt out of a lot of this. You can focus on eating food, not products. You certainly can focus on smaller portions, buy local sustainable, grow your own food, cook at home, and teach kids to cook. That's just the best thing in the world to do. But I I also think that as an individual who cares about these issues, you also need to participate in social responsibility for creating a food environment that makes it easier for people to make these kinds of healthy personal choices. And for that, you've got to get involved in politics. And by politics, uh, there are lots of ways of doing it, some of them really fun and some of them less fun. The fun ones are things like farmers markets and urban farming, local farming. Um, and then it gets more difficult when you start working on trying to change the way the agricultural support system works, but it's still worth uh, doing. And you can get involved in politics in the whole range that I was talking about, from agriculture to public health. Um, you can work in your local schools. That's a really good way to do it. Schools all over the country are improving their meals, and the new legislation makes it easier for them to do so. You can work on neighborhood access to healthier foods. You can establish a better safety net for people who don't have very much money. You can work on issues related to marketing to children and food labels and those kinds of things. And then think about maybe some way, sometime of dealing with the really big ones, which are somehow 
cleaning up the corruption in our election campaign laws, which we're seeing in action right now, and then cleaning up the corruption on Wall Street, uh, which are really the basis of all of the problems that we have to deal with. So I'll leave you there with that. I appreciate so much the opportunity to talk to you. Go out and do it. If someone wants to be in the field of nutrition today, they would be best to be open to new ideas because nutrition is an evolving science. It would be good to respect dedicated people in the field, speak openly, have conferences like this, bringing speakers with diverse opinions together to share their ideas. You would think that there would be strong promotion of organic and sustainable agriculture, address the obesity epidemic, childhood diabetes, and at least have discussion about requiring labeling for genetically modified foods. And you wouldn't really think that the people who are promoting health would be subsidizing sugar, corn, dairy, and meat, and soy industries. Being an evolving science, the challenge is that people have opinions that are diametrically opposed to each other. In all other science, there are facts. Speed of light is 670 million miles per hour. Distance between the Earth and the Sun is 93 million miles, water is H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, and the heart beats at 72 times per minute. But in nutrition, there are major gaps. People always question, is organic healthier for you? Is it the same as commercial? Is dairy good for you? Does it build strong bones? Or does it create mucus and indigestion? Is meat good for you and build strong football players? Or is meat cause cancer, make you sick? These are, it's not like they're sort of similar ideas. They're complete opposite ways of thinking and there is no science that is anywhere close to this. In science, people agree. In nutrition, people could not disagree more. Many people say they can tell you exactly what you should be eating. This is called modern nutrition. You should be vegan. You should be on the paleo diet. Have you heard those before? Have you said those before? On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are like, what's not healthy about dairy? If tap water wasn't good for me, why would the government have it coming out of my tap? High fructose corn syrup is natural. It's made from... At Integrated Nutrition, we focus on bioindividuality. One person's food is another person's poison. There is no theory that's the right theory for you. It's you finding what works for you. And what worked for you yesterday may not work for you tomorrow. What works for you on Monday may not work for you on the weekend. What works for a young person may not work for, work for an older person. And have you noticed that men and women eat pretty differently? 
Into all this confusion enters our federal government. Like they don't have enough problems of their own. They want to get involved with telling people what they should be eating, what's good for you, what's not good for you. And hey, I have an idea. Let's subsidize all these foods and make them really inexpensive. But we're not going to subsidize apples and carrots and those kinds of things. In 1999, Dr. Neil Barnard successfully sued the USDA, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, showing that all members of the board that designed the USDA health eating pyramid had ties to the meat, dairy, egg marketing industry. I think that health coaches are going to save the world. I'm pretty sure about it. You're going to save my world. My world is the American health care system. But I don't think that all of our health heroes wear capes or white coats. But I am perfectly clear on who the villains are, the real villains in our complicated healthcare fairy tale. And that's what the World Health Organization calls self-induced illnesses. Self-induced illnesses are the 80% of premature heart disease, diabetes, and stroke that could be prevented. Those are the villains. Now, my fairy tale castle is a hospital. And there's actually two types of castles, but you might not know which type of castle is your hospital down the street. There's for-profit and not-for-profit. It used to only be we had non-profit, even before when healthcare was in the home, technology advanced, we moved into hospitals. In the 60s with Medicaid and Medicare, we had the start of for-profit hospitals. Now, they should be delivering the same standards of care, should be very, very similar. But let me point out one important difference in how they manage resources. For-profit hospitals pay corporate taxes to the government, just like any other business. The government takes those taxes and pays for healthcare and education and roads and all of our other government services. Not-for-profit healthcare does not pay corporate taxes. Instead, they show every year that they are spending the money that they would have paid to the federal government on community benefits. $95 billion. So I want you to think of that like an apple, okay? This is the 
nonprofit health care tax exemption apple. $95 billion apple. Now, the overwhelming majority of these funds are spent on individual patient care. Humpty Dumpty comes into the ER, and Humpty Dumpty does not have insurance. We put Humpty Dumpty back together again, and Humpty Dumpty's bill comes out of this apple. Old Mother Hubbard comes in for a heart procedure. She has Medicare. Medicare is a government payer. The government is the largest payer in the United States. 60% of our inpatient stays are paid for by the government. And the government pays our health system 1,000 gold coins for her heart procedure. But we have stated that the cost of care is actually 5,000 gold coins. The 4,000 gold coins, the differential, come out of that apple. Now, if old mother Hubbard gets readmitted because she lives in a shoe and she's got an infection, then we get paid even less and more has to come out of this apple. So we are all in this together because America, we get one big apple. But this bite, the love bite here, is about 5%, and it is close to $5 billion. This is the true community benefit. These are investments that are made outside of the castle walls. They're not made for one individual patient. They are made for communities. They're for all of us. With the Affordable Care Act and changes in our insurance model, in theory, the other parts of the apple, those costs would go down, and this love bite would get bigger. That's what we're trying to do. So my not-for-profit health system, we took part of our bite and invested it in some new health heroes. We became the first healthcare system to partner with the Institute for Integrative Nutrition to provide yep. wait, wait till you hear this. Full scholarships to any of our 16,000 employees in Alaska, Washington, and Oregon. Yeah. So we have physicians, and we have nurses, we have medical assistants, but we also have marketing and finance and HR, and we are building this army. Healthcare is traditionally not good at talking and walking the same thing. And we know that we've got to start from within. So part of our process as launching this program, I didn't ask for professional letters of recommendation. I didn't want it to feel like a job. I just asked for letters of support. 
So I got to come to work every morning and open healthcare love letters. People's children wrote letters about why they thought their dad should do this. Letters from spouses. We had so many people write in the most genuine, you know, letters of care and love, and they all basically said some version of Cinderella was born to do this. And our next chapter is that we will be extending these scholarships into our communities. So outside of our castle walls into the villages. These are scholarships that we're giving to our other nonprofit community partners who are doing the work with us. Meals on Wheels, WIC, Head Start, churches, schools, food banks. And we're building the IIN network. Yeah, super. And we're building the IIN network to connect to our internal network so that we can provide that care uh, that we know that we need everywhere. So the reason I can do this, the reason I can be up here talking about this is because my fearless leader, my CEO, is a registered dietitian. She's the only one that, that I can find anywhere. So we have a lot of um, leadership in healthcare that, uh, whether you're a physician or provider, but she's the only one who's a registered dietitian. So I think of her like a fairy godmother or a queen. She wouldn't wear this crown, but I think she deserves it. So let's talk about registered dietitians for a minute. This was a really big, important change for our internal hospital culture. There are about 100,000 registered dietitians in the United States, yet one in three of us is pre-diabetic, so that's like 100 million people. So if you're not actively managing your diabetes, then you should be actively preventing it. And everybody else, we're all just pre-pre-diabetes because America. So supply and demand is real in any fairy tale world. We're spending billions on diabetes. We've got 100,000 registered dietitians. We talk a lot in public health about the number of providers per capita, and we're starting a very real conversation about having enough mental health providers per capita, but no one is talking about our lack of nutrition professionals. So we're gonna need to work together. Oftentimes, our registered dietitians feel locked in our castles. Well, that's where they are well-respected parts of the care team. They are reimbursed there. That's a good spot to be. I might want to stay in the castle, too. But the real action, the adventures, where the battles are being fought are all outside of the hospital walls. And many times that's where the registered dietitians wish, wish they could be providing that care. But they've gone through four years of college, a long internship, sit for the American Dietetics Association exam. So they're practicing at the end of their scope. They're 
oftentimes doing medical intervention, nutrition, feeding tubes, insulin adjustments. And that's great, but we're going to have to partner together to do that. The care is always more expensive in the castle. So the more care that we can push outside of the castle, the lower the cost for the individual, for the hospital, and for all of us. If I had three wishes for health coaches and the American healthcare system, first, it would be a universal language. I spend an incredible amount of time translating English to English. I speak healthcare. I speak medicine. I often am just speaking disease. You, you all speak the native language of IIN. You speak nourishment. You speak primary foods. You speak love, and you really speak community. The first words we really have to translate and interpret that healthcare is starting to use as we are finally innovating to understand the value of this care outside. Social determinants of health. It's basically the medical term for anything that affects your health that isn't acutely happening in the hospital. Transportation, housing, your support system, your nutrition, very important. Population health management, that's looking at communities and not individuals. If you can find the people speaking these words, you can find your me and you can work with your hospital system. Second, I would wish for an electronic medical record that could document the care that you are providing outside the hospital walls. Inside the hospital, <laughs> inside the hospital, it's healthcare. Most other countries call it social care and they're linked and they're valued and that's the only way we're gonna get reimbursement. But right now, if it didn't happen in the medical chart, it didn't happen. And lastly, my biggest wish would be that everyone would have a health coach. Behavior, <laughs> Behavior change is not easy and it's scary and no one wants to walk through a dark forest alone. One of the more well-respected and well-researched evidence-based medicine programs and behavior change are around 12 steps, 12-step programs. We can understand that from the medical model. And in a 12-step program, you get a sponsor. You get a sidekick. We need each other. We're all walking each other home or through the grocery store. So I don't have the lamp, but I'm working really hard to make sure these three wishes come true. I thank you. I need you guys to storm the castle. You can have your hospitals call me. I will not talk about fairy tales. I promise. 
but I want to share my superpower. And my superpower is that I am a combination of Mary Poppins and Nancy Drew. Took me a while to figure it out, but I know what it is now. And that just means that I believe in the magic, but also the science. And that's the translating English to English that opens the door for creativity and for change within our healthcare system. So even after 20 years in healthcare, I still believe in the irresistible fairy tale because I think it is just the universal human story. And there is nothing more human than health. So I think together, if we can work together, we can make sure more healthcare fairy tales have happy endings. Hey, it's Cole with the Education Department, and today I'm going to guide you through writing your first ebook. Writing an ebook is a great way to reach more people with your message, establish yourself as an authority in your field, attract more prospective clients into your sales funnel, and make more money. When you're ready to write your first book, the first thing you want to do is set a publish date. Put it in your calendar and tell someone who will hold you accountable. Next, set up a writing schedule. To start, block off three to five hours each week to work on your book. The exact amount of time will depend on how long you want your book to be and your writing endurance. I recommend working in 90 minute blocks and then taking a fun little break. If you go for longer, you might zone out, lose focus, and compromise your work. However, if you're on a roll and are feeling great, don't stop. Everyone's creative process is different, so listen to your body and notice how you work best. You know yourself, so trust your intuition. After you set your publish date and map out your writing schedule, it's time to choose a topic. It's likely you're passionate about a lot of different topics. Raw foods, working out, meditating, the list is endless. Yes, you can write about all these topics at some point, so don't be scared that you're limiting yourself by choosing just one topic for your first book. It's crucial to the success of your book and brand to choose one topic per book and really dive deep or else you might come across as scattered and unfocused, and your book might be undigestible because there's lots of little bits and pieces, but you never really dive deep into anything. It's awesome to be multi-passionate, but trust that you'll cover all the topics you're meant to over time, and don't sacrifice impact and value by trying to write about everything at once. Think of a subject you love and that you want to teach for a while, a theme you can offer many different products and services on. Choose something that you connect with personally and that you have experience teaching. For example, let's say the topic of your ebook is the power of healthy fats. Later on, you might choose to host a live lecture series about healthy fats or be a guest contributor to a blog about healthy fats. Consistently teaching the same topic helps establish you as an expert in your field. For example, if you have an ebook, a lecture series, and have been featured as a guest blogger, all focusing on the topics of healthy fats, you become known as an expert and go-to source for the topic. Do a brainstorm. Write down everything you're considering, no filter. Highlight the best stuff and choose a clear, relatable topic from there, then stick to it. Next, think about your title. And if you have your heart set on one, make sure it's not already taken. Don't sweat it or get too attached. 
There are always going to be multiple books on every subject and there's always a fresh title that you can choose that's unique to you. It's also a great time to do a temperature test on your topic. Who's written on your subject and in what style? How was their book received? Are there any holes in the market you could fill, info that isn't out there yet? How could you present your topic in a way that's uniquely you? After you choose your topic and get disciplined about sticking to your schedule and honoring your creative process, start to think about the vibe of the book. Is it serious and academic or fun and entertaining? A combination of the two. Even if you're teaching a serious topic, if you use humor in some places, your book will be much easier to read. This is also the time to think about who your reader is by doing an ideal client avatar exercise. Who exactly are you writing to? Who do you want to read this book? It's important to define your ideal reader and write directly to them. This will inform which personal stories, exercises, and case studies you choose to use based on what speaks to your reader's needs and desires. Here are a few questions to get you thinking. How old is your reader? What do they want to get out of the book? What is their biggest struggle? What will it mean if they don't overcome the struggle? What is their dream? What do they do for a living? What do they really, really want? And where do they spend their time and money? Then, when you sit down to write, write to that one person, and you'll come off as much more authentic and relatable. The more specific you get, the more effective your book will be. The next step is sitting down and actually writing the ebook. Stick to your calendar here. This is important. Treat your writing dates like super important meetings, because they are. Writing a book is rewarding and fun, but it definitely takes self-discipline and time. If writing isn't your complete zone of genius, but you want to get your message out there in a big way, don't be afraid to hire a writing coach or straight-up ghostwriter to help you out. If you have the budget, go for it. And don't feel guilty. Tons of very talented writers have worked closely with ghostwriters. You can get most of the ideas, and they'll flesh them out and or edit, or they can generate ideas by talking to you and translating your concepts onto paper. Honor yourself and your time, and let someone support you in bringing your brilliant ideas into the world. You can't do everything. Whether you're doing it on your own or hiring support, now is the time to start writing. It's a great idea to open your book with a story. Personal anecdotes hook your readers right away and make your book truly stand out, rather than just being a regurgitation of information that anyone can find on Google. It's also very effective to open chapters with personal stories, something that readers can connect with and be entertained by or moved by in some way. Maybe your story makes them happy, sad, empathetic. Every book has a different vibe and intention. How do you want to make your readers feel? Another awesome feature you can sprinkle throughout your book is questions and exercises. For example, at the end of each chapter, you might ask your readers to take action by experimenting with the new food or lifestyle tool that you taught about throughout the chapter. Guide them through your teaching points interspersed with personal stories, case studies, and action steps. For example, if you wrote about your journey from vegan to grass-fed butter lover and the health benefits of high-quality butter, you might ask your readers to try it out for themselves by experimenting with something like bulletproof coffee or cooking their vegetables and butter instead of steaming them. 
You can also use client case studies, success stories, and testimonials to demonstrate the value of your knowledge and practical application of your work. The more interactive and engaging you can make your book, the better. What's the reader getting out of it? How will it change their lives? Next, let's talk more about your book title. The title is a huge value point and deserves just as much attention and intention as the book itself. A good title can sell millions of copies all by itself, even if the book is garbage. Yup, it's true. You're not going to write a book that's garbage because you're incredibly talented, but it's so true that the title means everything. So think about a title that will attract readers and make them want to buy your book. Sometimes you know the title before you start writing. Other times, the writing informs the title and you choose it midway through the book, or even when you're completely done with writing. In either case, give the sizzle, not the stink. For example, if you choose to write about healthy fats, here are some sample titles. Get Thin by Eating Butter. Why Fat Will Actually Help You Lose Weight. The Secret to Weight Loss That No One Talks About. The Real Reason you can never focus and get lean by eating fat. Now, these are just some examples, but you can see that we're being a little edgy to draw people in without being misleading. Next, edit, edit, edit. This is so key. You could write the best book in the world, but if it's littered with spelling errors, it's not going to sell and it'll discredit you as an expert and taint your reputation. Don't put all the pressure on yourself here. You may be a wonderful writer and content developer, but it's really tough to copy edit and prove your own work. So hire a professional editor and let them get into their zone of genius and polish up your book baby so it's squeaky clean and ready for the shelves or the screen. Okay, that was a lot of information, so let's recap. First, you set a published date. Next, you mapped out your writing schedule. Then you chose an awesome, clear topic that you love teaching about. You did some research on your topic and started thinking about your title. Next, you defined your reader in detail. Then you stuck to your writing schedule and sat down each week to write the book, and you hired a writing coach or ghostwriter if you wanted to and had the budget. You used some combination of teaching points, personal stories, case studies, and exercises to engage your audience throughout the book. Then we revisited your book title and talked about how crucial it is to the success of your book. Last was editing for spelling and grammar errors. So important. Wow, great job. That was a lot of information. Now you have the basic tools that you need to write your first ebook, and I can't wait to see what you come up with. Have an awesome day, and we'll talk to you soon. Today I'm going to share how you can get massive exposure for your business by writing a book. During the health coach training program, we've talked about the many ways that you can market your business. Possibly one of the best ways is to position yourself as an expert, specialist, or thought leader. This will allow you to increase referrals to your business and open the door for speaking and media engagements. And you can do this by publishing a book. A book shows that you are passionate enough about a subject to do an investigative dive on it and share your revelations with the world. It also shows that you are serious and committed to what you do, and most importantly, are always learning. Even with a master's in education and as the founder of the world's largest nutrition school, 
Joshua often got asked, where is your book? That is a testament to how powerful a book is in positioning yourself and establishing credibility. Integrative nutrition graduate Karen Mayo published her book, Mindful Eating, and through that, created the opportunity to speak at Columbia University, something she shares wouldn't have been possible otherwise. You can see that writing a book opens the doors to some incredible possibilities. So what else is possible? How about referral partnerships? We like to say that a book is like a long-form business card. It tells people exactly who you are, what you do, and what you believe in, in addition to lending all of that credibility that we've been talking about. Writing a book can be a great marketing and publicity tool for your business. I know what you're thinking. How can I suddenly just become an author? Well, let's discuss the four key steps to getting started writing your book. The first step is to pick your topic. We recommend picking the topic that you want to be known for. So if you work with clients on helping them find their passions, you might write a book about living a life full of passion. And don't be afraid to go too narrow here. The second step is to actually write your book. This is the easy part for some and the hard part for others. It really just depends on your natural inclinations and aptitude toward writing. If I could give you one tip about this early on in your journey, it would be to keep it short. You don't need to write a novel. Your book doesn't have to be 300 pages long. The reality is most people don't have time to read really long books. So it works for both you and your readers to keep your book short, simple, and to the point. Step number three is to publish your book. This is the part that most people find confusing. How do you find a publisher? How do you get that publisher to actually want to publish your book? We recommend self-publishing your book. <clears throat> what this means is that you're not pitching publishers and asking them to publish your book for you. You're taking the publication process into your own hands. And with the 21st century resources, it's actually easier to do than you may think. Self-publishing offers several perks over traditional publishing. It allows you to publish your book sooner rather than later. Traditional publishing generally takes a few years to get your book out and into the world, meaning that you won't be able to use it to build your business right away. You retain full control over your book. So if you're looking for full creative license with your book, self-publishing allows you that freedom. When you self-publish your book, it's easy to make updates. So if you notice an error in your book, you want to add a new resource, or you want to revise your book to include new information, you can easily achieve that. When you publish your book yourself, you receive 100% of the profits from your book. Publishers often take a portion of the proceeds before paying out their authors. By this point, you've picked your topic, written your book, and published it. So you're done, right? Not quite. Just because you've written and published a book doesn't mean that people are going to read it or that the media is suddenly going to pick it up for a feature. You need to first set what we like to call your beyond the book goal. What do you want this book to do for you? What do you want it to do for your business? Your goal for your book will determine how you market it. For example, if you wrote a book on managing stress and you want to speak to audiences about managing stress, you could send 
copies of your book along with a speaking proposal to different conferences or events in your industry. If you wanted your book to help you get more clients, you might send your book to potential referral partners as a way to catch their attention and pique their interest in partnering with you. Alternatively, you might add something to your book about your coaching services or online programs. The key here is to pick a marketing strategy that's aligned with your beyond the book goals and then execute it. Books don't become well known just because someone wrote them. They become well known because someone promoted them. To recap, we talked about the possibilities that are created when you write a book. We also discussed the steps to getting your book out there. Pick a topic, write your book, publish your book, and promote your book. If you're interested in further support in writing, publishing, and promoting your book, I want to let you know about the Launch Your Dream Book course. This is a six-month course designed to help you take your book from concept to creation and beyond. Hundreds of students of all ages and backgrounds have used the Launch Your Dream Book course to not only publish their book, but get it out there to international acclaim. Students of this course have been featured in the Huffington Post and on local news media. They've started their own TV shows and won national and international book awards. They've become best-selling authors and have been keynote speakers at conferences and events. And they've been invited to speak with well-known health and wellness authorities. We've created a system to make writing, publishing, and promoting your book simple and straightforward. If this is something you're interested in learning more about, please visit www.launchyourdreambook.com. For questions about this course, please email support at launchyourdreambook.com. <coughs> I hope we get the opportunity to support you with your book, if that's a goal for you.